0: From the 14th. Smith on third and three. He throws to the end zone.
1: So, Don, did you see that the Giants upset the Packers on Sunday? <laughs> yes, I did. So, the Saints get to host the NFC Championship game then, right?
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Huh.
1: huh. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that later. <laughs> Welcome to episode number three of the second season of the Sportscasters. It's January seventeenth, two 2012. We are coming to you from Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ. How are you doing today, bud? Super. Uh, We have a lot to get to today. We have a, a bunch of guests lined up for you. Kenny Albert, who is actually calling the Saints and 49ers game this weekend, is on the show today. Also, Phil Taylor, the guy that has taken over the back page article in Sports Illustrated, Going to join us today to talk a little bit about writing the back page column for SI, one of the most prestigious pieces of sports journalism landscape out there. We also have Jim Trotter and Don Banks, two NFL insiders, to take us through what happened this weekend. Jim was at in San Francisco as well. We're going to talk a little bit about the game with him, and Don is going to take us through all the other games, look ahead, and talk a little bit about some of the news in the NFL. We're also going to continue our top 10 list this week, and the list this week is, Don and I are going to give you 10 reasons each how we would help the Bills become a playoff team, if it's possible. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention before we get going today, we kind of debuted a new part of the Sportscasters' media landscape, and that is we started a Tumblr site. The way that you get to it is really simple. It's thesportscasters.tumblr.com. So it couldn't be any easier Easy than enough, that. Yep. Tumblr isn't spelled with an e for whatever reason. It's just T U M B L R. Right. Guess that's to make it stick out or hip, <laughs> be shorter or something. So uh, the sportscasters.tumblr.com. We're going to use that to put guest previews, show recaps, kind of a little bit anything that we want to be a little bit longer than Twitter, but quite not as long as what we use our blogspot spot for. Right. So that's where that's going to kind of fit in. So let's just recap real quick all the places where you can find us. One is our website. It's sports-casters.com. Very easy. Two is Facebook, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, which we are at sports underscore casters. You can find our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. That's where we do all of our live blogs. Uh, we have some recurring features that we do on there. And our Tumblr is the sportscasters.tumblr.com and then you can also email us, at Sportscasters at gmail. So there's a lot of different places where you can find us, and it gets a little bit confusing, but we'll make sure to recap it as much as we can. And if you're on our website, sports it's all there. So should be an easy way to find it. Another thing you can find on our website is our episode from last week, which fe- featured interviews with Chris Ballard, Michael Holly, and Damon Hack. I really loved the uh, Michael Holly interview, Don. I listened back to it and I thought it went really well. He was really fun. Yeah. Look forward to having him on again in the future. But like I said, we have a lot to do today. Kenny Albert, Phil Taylor, Jim Trotter, Don Banks. Let's get it started. Three things. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest
0: night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep.
1: Now let's move on to other business. All right, I'm going to start off this week, and I'm going to just get it out of the way right away and say that I took the loss pretty well. I think I had a mature reaction to it, and I'm going to say this. I had a hell of a great time watching the football game on Saturday. I really did. It started kind of slow. It was disappointing early. I thought that it might get away from us. And we might never compete in the game. Then the team did what the team has done since 2006 seemingly, and that's just battle back. And They almost battled all the way back. There was two times I thought they want, would win the game there at the end. Unfortunately, the defense, who really played fantastic football all day, up until that last yeah. four minutes. Couldn't hold Alex Smith. And it's disappointing, but here's my rationale. Since 2005, the Saints win 3-13. and 13. Up to that point, I'd only seen my team win one playoff game. Seen a lot more 3-13s and 13s than even 8-8s. Eight and, and since then, with the hiring of Coach Peyton and the signing of Drew Brees, the Saints have been to the playoffs four times, three years in a row now. They've won a Super Bowl. They've won playoff games against the Eagles at home on a Saturday night. They won a playoff game at a Saturday night at home against uh, the Lions this year. They've beaten the Vikings in a classic on a championship game. That was a lot of fun to watch. I always have Tracy Porter and his interception in the Super Bowl. Right. And even though we didn't quite win this week, and even though I'm disappointed that we would have had a chance to play as a 9-0 and home team in the NFC Championship game against the Giants and maybe a chance to go to another Super Bowl. It was a great season. I mean, after our loss in October to the Rams, didn't lose again until the second week of the playoffs. And uh, that's hard to do. This league is difficult. It's a close league. Games aren't won lost by much. And uh, I guess now I'm just going to look forward and hope that everything can work out this season because... I don't want to be forced to watch another game for a long time without Drew Brees and Marcus Colston. They're probably my top two favorite Saints ever, and I hope that – I know that they're not going to let Brees go.
2: No, right. It's Colston would be the question. Colston
1: is one i got to worry about, and Carl Nix is another guy, and Robert Meacham is a free agent. So they have some work to do this offseason. But, um, you know, the, the two priorities for me are just making sure Brees is happy and making sure that they keep Colston. So hopefully that works out. And all in all – you know, I have a couple friends who are 49ers fans, and after the game I congratulated them. But, you know, what can you do? It was a great game.
2: Yeah, certainly was. Um, someone that didn't quite have a great weekend was uh, Jim Caldwell. Nope. Was fired. And this maybe isn't big enough news typically for something like a 3 things segment on its own, but uh, they did hire a new GM, Ryan Gregson, uh, last week. He comes in and uh, fires Caldwell. And doesn't surprise me. He wants his own guy. No, not especially. But Manning did kind of – he is kind of in the Caldwell camp. I think this may show you a little bit that uh, they're not necessarily going to worry about what Peyton wants. And maybe – I mean, he's got a $28 million bonus that kicks in in March. So they don't have a lot of time to really decide this. You're not going to cut him after you give him $28 million. Right. so
1: well, I think paying that $28 million is to, it's going to be – the final decision It's going to be Jim Irsay's. Right. You know, when you're talking about a $28 million payment, I think the owner is going to have a pretty big say there. Yeah, you'd think so. You know, so I think that he'll make the final decision. And we're going to talk more about this with Don Banks later who wrote about this on Sports Illustrated today. But, you know, i was just been keeping an eye and we've been keeping an eye on the show here on the coaching carousel in general. Right. There was more action besides Caldwell. Uh, Mike Martz retired which I wonder if that was kind of a forced retirement because yeah. there were some rumblings that he might not be asked back. Greg Williams, who came out under a lot of fire for some Saints fans who were looking for people to blame on but Saturday. he resigned. He right? left. Yeah, right. he went to St. Louis to be a part of Jim uh, Jim Fisher's staff, and right. he's officially a coach of the Rams now. He wasn't last week. So things are continuing to change, and con- coordinators are bouncing around, and there's still a couple of jobs. The Miami job is still open. Now the Colts job is still open. What do you and, think about uh, that?
2: I mean, that's a uh, – again, we talk about how ret- uh, reactionary football decisions are. Uh, do you think it was Greg Williams' fault? I mean, that's the way that kind of the team played all year is heavy blitzing. and.
1: Well, here's the thing. I would have liked to have been a little bit more conservative on defense in the last two minutes. Because the only way we could lose the game is if we got a touchdown scored on us. Right. I would almost even concede a field goal if I had to in that situation, if I had to. Right. But then again, I think back to the Super Bowl. And I think of Chris Sims right before the Tracy Porter interception saying, I wouldn't blitz anymore. And he blitzed. And that's why we won the Super Bowl. So I can't kill him two years later for just being himself and running the defense he's always run. It didn't work that day. Right. And But like you said, people it, were killing him in the media. And, and I don't think that was fair. Right. And uh, Because you you got you to gotta take the good and the bad when you play basically Russian roulette defense like they do. Right. You know what I mean? And, and by the way, the defense worked all day long. I mean, yeah, a- yes. Alex Smith had terrible body language near in the middle of the fourth quarter. I mean, they couldn't gain a yard. How many times – Did the defense give the ball back to the offense when they were behind in that game with a chance? They wouldn't have had those touchdowns. It wouldn't have mattered without the way the defense played all day. So I'm not going to blame it on them. I'm not going to blame it on Roman Harper, who had a great sack fumble. I mean, Roman Harper is a near-the-line-of-scrimmage player, you know? And if you're going to put him in a situation where he needs to try to cover Vernon Davis, that's just not going to work. Just like Dante Whitner couldn't cover Jimmy Graham. That just didn't work. So I, I, you know... Although part of me is kind of tired of the defense not matching the offense in terms of ability, right? We won a Super Bowl with Greg Williams defense playing that way. So but part of me is excited to see what a new coordinator can do with a lot of young talent because since Breeze has been the quarterback, we've really just been adding talent to the defense all along. You know, Cameron Jordan was a first round pick, Malcolm Jenkins was a first round pick, you know, Patrick Robinson was a first round pick. Uh, Roman Harper is the second-round pick. Will Smith was the first-round pick. There's Cedric Ellis. There's tons of first-round picks on that defense, and I think that I'd let us see what a new defensive coordinator can do with it.
2: Yeah, and another example of a reactionary uh, call is I was watching the Green Bay game, and they came out and did the onside kick at 10-10, and maybe that wasn't the time to do it, but they really had nothing going for them all game. And everyone sitting in the living room watching with me is like, what are they doing? What are they thinking? And I said, well, I mean, it worked for the Saints, and they did it on a, on a bigger stage. So it you don't like it because it didn't work. Right. So in football, it's never it's more evident than any other and sport. And you
1: know what people don't understand is players love that kind of stuff. Right. Players love when their coach is being aggressive and believing in them as a team. Yep. Everyone killed Mike Smith when his fourth and inches didn't work. The Falcons love that. Falcons rallied around that, and they were a better team from that point forward. Yep, you know, and it didn't work out in the playoffs, but that's more about just kind of the level of talent that they maybe had. But even still, players love that. I'm sure the Packers were pumped, and it didn't work out, but it should have. Right, they had had plenty of opportunity to recover that. So sometimes it's not about the decision, but the execution. I think that's a great example that should have worked. So, I don't know. It's me, right? It is you. Okay, number two. Sidney Crosby. It's just starting to break my heart. I know I've said this before. It's not the first time we've brought this up. But there was new news this week that Sidney Crosby is seeing a concussion specialist. Uh, He basically gets headaches after he exercises. Yeah. And uh, he's just not going to be able to play. Uh, Crosby said it's a tough injury. It's not always clear cut all the time. Now I feel like I know a lot more about what I'm feeling and how to improve it. I think being more familiar helps a bit. So that's Crosby, but look at I read a long article in preparation for the show today called 8 seconds by Michael Farber, who's going to be on next week's show to talk about that and other things. And a big part of the article was about Sidney Crosby and his Olympic gold medal winning goal. And I like I just like him. I just think he's a good kid. And I think he's great for the league and I love the way he plays. And he's accomplished so much. He's still a young guy. He's already won a Stanley Cup, won a gold medal, won at the World Juniors, You know, won MVPs, won scoring titles. And I just want him to get better. And I was disappointed when I heard that some of the Pittsburgh media called him out. And, really? Uh, yeah. One of the radio hosts there uh, tweeted that at some point he's going to need to decide if having headaches is worth being a star hockey player or not. which is just a ridiculous comment.
2: Yeah, I've never been a Crosby guy, but I I acknowledge that's because of uh, jealousy because the Sabres had the shot to get him and didn't. And maybe some of it was the he was a little bit of a whiner when he first got into the league, maybe a little bit of an embellisher. But he certainly worked through that, and there's been enough stories – I remember one good one was where he was challenged, or he challenged a guy to a fight. The guy said, "I'm not going to fight you because you wear a visor." So he had the trainer take the visor off his helmet on the next shift, and uh, so he just does everything the right way. It's hard not to at least respect that guy, and it it is sad to see. I've always said I really like Mark Savard in his career. Is I I don't even know. I'm looking for news on Mark Savard right now, and I can't find any. The most recent news is that his name will, will be or was included on the Stanley Cup because he missed
1: games. Due to injury, actually, our buddy Damischak tweeted out an article that was about Crosby, and they had some quotes of some tweets from Savard in there. Really, I guess that he's been tweeting that he still gets headaches and he hates this. And, unbelievable, you know. And it's just—that's another one. I, like you said, he's a really kind of a fun person, Bobai, Yeah, yep. a great player. Yeah,
2: concussions—it's uh—they got to get rid of them somehow. They got to start by making players wear mouth
1: guards and put their chin straps their on chin straps I mean just simple and, little things that these players are and wear the best helmets not the helmets that look the best yep All right my second thing this week
2: is more of a feel good score- story uh, David Akers ESPN wrote a nice piece on him you can easily find it David Akers 37 year old kicker last year uh, was having last year around this time was having about the worst time of his life he lost a game to the Eagles or lost the game with the Eagles to Green Bay In a game that he missed, two field goals of 41 and 34 yards. The day before that, the doctors told him that his six-year-old little girl, Haley, had cancer in her ovaries. Uh, In the year before that, he lost 3.7 million dollars in a Ponzi scheme to a guy that eventually was arrested, but didn't help him get his money back. This year, uh, he signs on three years for nine million dollars with San Francisco. He finds out his daughter is cancer-free. He is named the AP's first-team All-Pro uh, team as a kicker, and he sets the NFL record for both points and field goals with 166 points and 44 field goals. Uh, just an unbelievable turnaround. He, his new team, the 49ers, are 13 and 3, while the Eagles fall to 8 and 8, and he's 3 for 3 in an upset win over the same Well, maybe it wasn't an upset. It was a pretty tight line, but 3-for-3 three three and a win over the Saints. Unbelievable story. Uh, again, it all comes down to really a coach passing blame. I've never really disliked Andy Reid, but they lost that game, and the next thing he does is kind of cut David, or not re-sign David Akers. And obviously the Eagles have had more problems than just their kicker, but he was kind of he kind of took the brunt of it. And it's great to That'll see that to kickers. Yeah, it's great to see that uh, he turned it around and really I mean, his life went from about as low as it possibly could to he's gotta be on cloud nine right now, so
1: good for David Akers. All right, my last thing today is an interesting story about ESPN and the UFC. Apparently ESPN ran a story on outside the lines over the weekend about UFC and them maybe not paying their fighters a fair wage. And basically, the UFC, it's not a public company, and it's owned by Dana White and his partners. And basically, the story on Outside the Line said that the medium income for the average UFC fighter is between $17,000 and 23000 If you lose a fight, you might have only made $6,000. Um, I guess some of the lower paid fighters are willing to be on the show and and complain about about it. Well... Dana White didn't take too kindly to it, and he's put out two videos uh, to defend UFC. One video is short, like maybe about 12 minutes, and then another one is the whole 40-minute interview that ESPN did, did with Dana White's partner. Dana White called ESPN dirty, liars, and said they don't give you all the facts. He said that they spent 40 minutes interviewing his partner and only used three minutes of the interview. He also goes a long way into saying that, you know, Profits and payouts for fighters has gone up every year, that it's outmatched the growth. So you can go to sportsgrid.com, site that we talk about a bit. There's a good story on it that presents both sides of the issue, and I guess you can decide for yourself. My guess, I've always kind of thought that Dana White's new Vince McMahon, and my guess is he's kidding himself if he thinks that fighters are paid fairly. It's only the top guys. That are paid fairly. He pays. Uh, he pays for performance.
2: Basically, it's not like boxing where you're going to walk in guaranteed a huge purse. Uh, he gives out like a fight of the night bonus to the two guys involved in the best fight. But like you said, if you're like one of the undercards and you're not involved in the best fight, those guys probably aren't getting paid all that well. And he is the type of guy that if you're not uh, performing well, he will just fire you. Plus, the-
1: like, he's the guy who builds the stars up, right? He's the guy who's able to make the stars. So- right. So certain
2: guys, like, uh, his name's escaping me now. But there's this guy that's a good fighter. He puts on entertaining fights. Not necessarily that he doesn't win all of them. Oh, man. My brother would be pissed at me for forgetting his name. But uh, he always puts on good fights, and but he wasn't winning all of them. But he kept him around because he put on good fights. It's guys that put on boring fights and lose, and he'll just straight-up fire you. So... He is basically Vince McMahon in that way, where he'll fire you if you're entertaining, or if you're not entertaining, he'll fire you.
1: But a very interesting thing to check out there, and like I said, you get—it's cool that you get a clear look at kind of both sides of the story. My last thing this week: uh, Chad
2: Ochocinco, who has been kind of quiet lately, didn't do too much with his new team this year, but uh, you gotta he got a tweet. Still plays in the league, yeah, yeah. somewhat. He got a tweet. Uh, last week from a guy named Victor Gonzalez, he's a college student, who basically said to Chad Johnson on Twitter, been tweeting you for two years and have not ever gotten a response. So first of all, that's kind of not really a cool thing to do. He's a celebrity, he doesn't have time to respond to probably everybody. But anyway, that's my editorializing. Uh, Ocho Cinco retweets him and replies, damn, two years, my bad, want to come to the game Saturday. So... Chad apparently didn't find it uncool that he said that. He thought it was uh, an oversight on his part and he hooked Victor up with a ticket to the game, plane ticket and a hotel room. So he got to watch uh Tom Brady throw six 60+ passes.
1: We had a great game.
2: None of them to Ocho Cinco. Uh Really? We actually had zero catches in Come the on. game. Come on. Yeah, so Ocho Cinco still a good guy, just maybe not that good a player anymore. He's fun though. I always yeah, I, I like fun. him. I never minded I, him. Him and T O. uh but Ocho Cinco at least has never really been known as a bad locker room guy. I mean, if you want to, Tio's never really been in trouble either. But he is known as somewhat like a bad room guy. Ocho Cinco is just a and just I think this year guy. is great
1: proof of that because if he was a bad locker room guy, he'd be out of there.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, because I mean be... they got rid of Randy Moss, who's right. a better player by far. Right. So, so yeah, Ocho Cinco still, uh, still being cool on Twitter, even
1: though he's not doing much on the field. All right, so that's going to wrap up three things, and this is where we're going to go from here. We're going to have an interview with Kenny Albert off the top. We're going to take a break, come back, give you the top ten list for the week. We're going to have an interview with Phil Taylor, a book club update, an interview with Don Banks. Then we're going to do pick four, and as kind of a bonus after pick four, we're going to have an interview with Phil or Jim Trotter. So four interviews today, spread out over the course of the show. Let's take a break and come back with Kenny Albert. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of New York University. He has been broadcasting, writing, and covering sports since he was in diapers. At age 14, he became the official statistician for the New York Rangers games on the radio. From 1981 to 1986, he covered high school sports for the Port Washington News. While at NYU, he worked in the sports department at WNYU Radio. He has called hockey games for the Baltimore Skipjacks, Washington Capitals, the NHL on ESPN2, NHL Radio, the NHL on Fox, the New York Rangers, and the last three Olympics. Last spring, he called the NHL playoff games for the Television Network Versus. Since 1994, he has called NFL football games for Fox, and since 2007, he has worked on the network's second broadcast team with Daryl Johnson and Tony Saragusa. He is the only sportscaster who currently does play-by-play for all major. Pha- four major North American professional sports leagues. Since he last appeared on the podcast, he has done play-by-play for the NHL's Winter Classic and the all-time classic playoff game between the 49ers and the Saints. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Kenny Albert. How are you doing today, Kenny?
0: I appreciate the uh, introduction. I'm good. How are you guys?
1: We're doing very good. I mean, I don't know if we got to this last time, but I actually am a, a, a lifelong Saints fan, so... I'm kind of limping through the week and, and trying to recover and trying to be gracious, I guess, about losing that game. I, you know, everything changes, I guess, when you're a fan of a team that is terrible and you finally win a championship after all the years of heartache. And I kind of just brushed off the playoff loss last year, just kind of shut the TV off and didn't think about the team for five months. But this one's a little bit harder and I was so excited to have you on like last week before I knew that we had lost the game and then since then I was like oh man it's gonna be tough to talk to Kenny but you were lucky enough to be there I mean it's definitely probably one of the best if not the best playoff games the NFL's had in quite a long time um I guess to get started just what were your overall impressions of the day and how did it feel to be there
0: Well, uh, looking back, you know, it was obviously a crazy ending. Uh, The last four minutes and two seconds with four lead changes and uh, four touchdowns scored during that time, it was uh, obviously very exciting to be there and be a part of it. Um, You know, leading up to the game, there was so much talk about the Saints offense going up against uh, a terrific 49ers defense, and I'm not sure anybody would have expected both teams to score in the 30s, but, uh, you know, the 49ers got off to the quick start, took the 17-0 lead, and... At that point, you know, I'm sure you were thinking the same way as a Saints fan. There was still so much time left. Uh, when Acres kicked the field goal early in the second quarter, he still had you know, almost three full quarters left to go. And, you know, sure enough, the Saints shipped away and finally took the lead. You know, with just over four minutes remaining, and, and the rest is history, as they say. But uh, you're right, it wasn't a great event to be a part of. And, you know, we're only three days removed right now, and, uh, I think the more you look back and, and think about it, uh it, it certainly was one of the the most exciting playoff games in NFL history and I saw the numbers today the NFL released the uh ratings from the four playoff games and the Giants Packers had over forty one million viewers I guess on average and our game at thirty five million, so it's it's really hard to fathom. You know, when we're up there in the booth doing the game, uh so obviously you know it's a playoff game and, and that there will be a lot of eyeballs on it, but once the game starts, you don't really think about that. You, you broadcast as you normally would, and uh, you know three days later to find out that there were 35 million people on average watching that game is pretty incredible.
1: I want to talk to you about a, a couple of specific things about the game. Um, one thing is that I was kind of shocked, I don't know about you, but how well the Saints defense played all day. And, like, did you see anything? Did they... What changed from the way that defense had played all day, like frustrating the 49ers? I mean, really, up until the last four minutes, the 49ers had only made one play on offense. That was real early in the game on the Vernon Davis touchdown. What happened to the Saints' defense in the last four minutes?
0: That's a good question. You know, I probably have to go back and, and watch, you know, watch the game again uh, in depth. But, you know, it's funny. For a game that ended with, with 68 points, Both defenses did play very well. Um, You know, you look at the 49ers and the five turnovers they forced, although two of them did come on special teams, three by their defense, the three sacks of Drew Brees. And, you know, the 49ers defensively really have have stars at every level. Justin Smith uh, going to the Pro Bowl up front, Uh, Patrick Willis, one of their star linebackers, obviously, along with Navarro Bowman, and then. They have two Pro Bowlers in the secondary, so the 49ers' defense you know, received a lot of accolades. The Saints, on the other hand, uh, nobody's going to the Pro Bowl, but you know, in doing the Saints games during the year and speaking with coordinator Greg Williams, you know, they, they were able to take chances throughout the season and in the game on Saturday, you know, based on the fact that that their offense scored so many points. You know, the Saints averaged 34 points a game, um, you know, second highest in the league this year to Green Bay and the fourth highest number all time. So. I think because of, you know, the amount of points the Saints put up, the defense uh, was able to take chances, and, and Greg Williams, you know, certainly known for applying the pressure, as they did, uh, you know, throughout the game on, on Saturday as well. So, you know, as far as what happened in the last four minutes, you know, we'd have to go back and look. I'm not a coach, so I might not be able to figure it out anyway, but uh, uh, it was certainly uh, shocking, I'm sure, to the Saints, you know, to see Alex Smith, the 49ers down the field twice in those last four minutes just as group reached it on the other side.
1: You know, this is something I was thinking about during the game, and it didn't come up on the broadcast, and I was wondering if you thought of this at all, but when the 49ers were answering the first Saints touchdown, um, the, there was a timeout right before Alex Smith ran the uh, the bootleg touchdown. And when, the, when you guys were in commercial, I was thinking to myself that if the 49ers get a first down on this play, they're going to be able to kick a field goal basically at double zero. Instead, Alex Smith ran the ball all the way into the end zone, and it gave the Saints a chance to score another touchdown. And I was wondering if after a big story was going to be that maybe Alex Smith should have ran that ball out of bounds and ran the clock down and then kicked the field goal in the last few seconds. Did that? Did you think of that at all? Am I off on the math there? Or? Um,
0: I didn't think of it at all Saturday. You know, I know similar situations have been talked about in the past. You know, you think back to the Green Bay-Denver Super Bowl when, when Green Bay let Denver score late in order to get the ball back. You know, that sort of reverse on the defensive side. Um, I know in the Giants' Green Bay regular season game this year won by the Packers 38-35. You know, that was mentioned after the fact as well, that that the Giants perhaps scored too early and left Green Bay too much time. But I think it's hard to tell players not to score. Right. Um, you know, when Alex Smith is running down the sideline, you know, let's say it did cross his mind to go out of bounds and use some more of the clock. But then what happens if they fumble the next play? So I, I think you kind of have to, well, it's a good point, you know, on, on your behalf. I think you have to kind of live in the moment because you never know what happens on the next play. So... Uh, they did leave New Orleans time, and then obviously the Saints scored quickly, so it left uh, the Forty ers time to march downfield as well. But uh, you know, it, it's certainly not 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 a bad thought uh, on your part, and you know, it's easy to look back in hindsight, but uh, you just never know what you know. What if what if the Forty ers do run the clock down and the on the blocked? So uh, I think you know, when you live in the moment, you probably have to take the points, even even if you are leaving the other team too much time.
1: Right. You know, we know that the the rules in the league are directed towards the offenses, and offenses are putting up numbers we've never seen before. But how about the emergence of the tight end? And this game was a great example of it. Jimmy Graham and Vernon Davis scored the last two touchdowns of the game. Actually, Vernon Davis had both of the, or no, one of the two, but made plays on both drives. What can have you ever seen tight ends like this in the league?
0: I, I don't think we've seen this many of them. I mean, through the years, you know, you had the Kellen Winslows and, you know, Jeremy Shockey had a couple of great years and Mark Pavaro for the Giants back in the early 90s, but I don't think we've ever seen this many have the success they've had at one time. And You know, you look at the teams that are left with, with the two tremendous tight ends, Gronkowski and Hernandez in New England, and Jake Ballards had a nice season for the Giants, uh, Vernon Davis obviously for the 49ers, and... You know, the, the Ravens, when you think back again, uh, Todd Heath through the through the last decade, he's out in Arizona now, but uh, they're a team that's had great success, and their general character, Ozzie Newsom, was one of the best tight ends of all time, so uh, it certainly presents natural problems for defenses. Uh, you know, the Saints had a hard time stopping Davis, and, and teams throughout the season had a hard time stopping Jimmy Graham, who caught 99 balls, so, um, you know, you look at the success of the Patriots this year, and uh, the numbers that their two tight ends put up are just incredible. So I think there probably are more great tight ends now. And one and I'm even mentioning guys like Tony Gonzalez, is towards the latter end of his career, who, uh, put up good numbers again for Atlanta. Unfortunately, he's never won a playoff game in his career, you know, with Kansas City and Atlanta. But, uh, uh, there sure are a lot of good ones.
1: You know, as a fan, I'm now forced to look back on the season that my team had and really when I do that there's a lot of great memories from the season. It was a fantastic season. Going on the run to the Saints did from October to January it was it was fantastic. As a broadcaster, your season's over now. What are you gonna take away from this last season? Was in your mind I mean, I know you guys broadcast a ton of great games and um it seems like the 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 group that you guys have there really are clicking and the tech, technology that Sarah Gussin now has down on the field. Looking back on this season, what are you going to take away from it and you know, what were some of the high moments for you as a broadcaster in the NFL this year?
0: Well, that's, that's a good question and uh, I'm always sad to see it come to an end. This is year 18 uh, for me in the NFL on Fox. and. Um, you know, you put so much time into it during the last five months. You know, the preparation for a football game is just hours upon hours. And it, it, it's a lot of fun, but it, it is a lot of work as well. And uh, we spend, you know, every weekend, Friday through Sunday, with the production team, with Boots and Goose, and the producer and director right on down the line. So we really become the family for those four months. And uh, Like I said, it's always sad when it comes to an end. You know, it is a bit of a relief because you have some more free time and, you know, you're not as focused in, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But then about three weeks from now, uh, you wish to start it up again. So for for a couple of weeks, like I said, it's a bit of a release, not having to uh, pour through all the notes and clips and statistics and, and videotapes. But that only lasts for about three weeks. And then I wish it started up again around early February. But what I'll take away, you know, from this season from our crew, uh, I think I have to work backwards because obviously Saturday's game is the highlight uh, for us, the, the 49ers Saints game this past Saturday. But the, the entire month of December, um, we had the Tim Tebow game against Chicago uh, when the Broncos trailed 10 nothing with two and a half minutes left and, and came back to win in overtime. Uh, we had the Packers' loss in Kansas City, their only loss in the regular season. And then we had the Giants' Jets' game, the Victor Cruz 99-yard catch, which basically turned the fortunes of the, of the two teams around. So, Uh, And we also did the London game back in October, Chicago and Tampa Bay, which is a lot of fun. So I think those are the five uh, key memories, you know, that I'll take out of this season from our crew. Uh, One, the playoff game in San Francisco on Saturday. Uh, Two, the the Tebow comeback against Chicago. And then uh, certainly in no particular order, the Victor Cruz 99-yard touchdown against the Jets. The uh, game in London that we did between Chicago and Tampa Bay and Kansas City uh, shutting down the Packers.
1: Yeah, it was really when you when I'm listening to you say that I knew you guys had a great year, but I didn't realize it was quite that great. I mean, really you guys were spoiled with uh, a plethora of games that people are going to be talking about for a long time after this season, you know? And um it's not always quite, quite that way. I mean, some so like ESPN, you know, the Monday Night team. I thought, you know, they they had a really tough year this year. Just a lot of blowouts and teams that didn't And you know what? You really you way. really have
0: to you have to get lucky because, you know, yeah. early in the season, we had, a, we had a bunch of blowouts early in the season as well, and um, you know, the, the one game I didn't mention, uh, which was in November, was the Atlanta-New Orleans overtime game, which I'm sure you remember well, yep. when Mike Smith went for it on fourth down in overtime, and, and uh, the Falcons did not convert, and the Saints wanted to win that game, so I'd probably have to add that one to the list. Uh, we had three overtime games, Atlanta-New Orleans, Chicago-Denver, and, and Dallas-Washington, so um, you could put that in the uh, you know on the list as well. The Saints' overtime win over the Falcons.
1: Jeez, man! Oh, man! <laughs> money goes to money, I guess. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about today is not only have you had these great football games, but you were lucky enough to take part in the NHL's signature event, the Winter Classic between the Rangers and the flyers at citizens bank park in philadelphia and you know i was lucky enough to be at the first winter classic in buffalo it was a glorious day for our city um you know seventy-one thousand people watching a hockey game and what seemed like a snow globe i know when i watched it back on tv i I felt like i must have spent the last five hours in a snow globe but um what was your experience like at the winter classic and um what were some highs and lows of, of broadcasting that game
0: It was great. It was a tremendous experience. Um, As far as our, uh, you know, the the actual broadcast, we we were pretty far away from the ice, and that was a bit of a challenge. We were up in the baseball press box at Citizens Bank Park, but it was just such a fun day, um, you know, to get to broadcast one of the Winter Classics. I had watched the four previous ones on television, and uh, with the Rangers Flyers rivalry and the twenty four seven show on HBO, and the weather was perfect. It was cold, but it wasn't too cold. Uh, it snowed a little bit towards the end of the second period and then during the second air mission. And then the game, uh, you know, it came down to a penalty shot stopped by Henrik Lundqvist in the last minute on, on Danny Briere. So the game certainly lived up to uh, expectations as well, but uh, being a part of it was, was really a whole lot of fun.
1: Did you get a chance to skate on the rink? i did
0: not um i got into town late sunday night because i had a football game in minnesota Mm. um i don't know if i would have been able to anyhow but i know on saturday they did have some opportunities for the rangers families so um unfortunately i wasn't able to make it on saturday my uh, radio partner dave maloney the former captain of the rangers uh did play in the alumni game saturday and uh, he, he said it was such a tremendous experience you know, getting back out there with some of his former teammates and some of the other ex Rangers as well. So I guess I lived uh, vicariously through days hearing uh, the stories about the alumni game on Saturday.
1: Were you surprised as I, this is just kind of an aside, but were you surprised as I were that 24 7 decided to completely ignore the existence of the alumni game?
0: Um, you know, I never thought about it, but that's a good point. Uh, you know, they followed the Rangers and Flyers, the current teams around, obviously. Um, But come to think of it, uh, they did not include the alumni game in the shows at all. But you know they had so much material to work with, and they had to edit it down into the four uh, one-hour shows. And and they did a great job. It was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, But you're right, the alumni game uh, was not included on the Saturday.
1: Do you think uh, Henrik Lundqvist uh, making the save on that penalty shot, were you like me? Were you thinking of Burry and Richter? I mean, I know it wasn't the Stanley Cup, but... You know, the NHL makes such a big deal out of this game that when you're sitting there watching it, you feel like you're watching the biggest hockey game that's ever been played. Did you get kind of a feeling of like, you know, this is Burre Richter all over again with Briere versus Lundqvist? And were you surprised? Do you do you think the ice was a factor there? Do you think Briere kind of limited his options and decided to come in and shoot? I mean, he's a guy that normally dekes, you know? What were your thoughts yeah, on the yeah, penalty is, shot?
3: Yeah, it
0: certainly may have been, you know, given that it was the end of, of the game and a long weekend, so that certainly may have come into play. Um, as far as the I Richter, I don't think I thought it right then at that point uh, because we were just trying to see a good replay of, of the puck getting uh, right. uh, covered in the crease by Ryan McDonough. Uh, but I will say this whenever there are penalty shots in Ranger games, uh, that is referenced, you know, whether it's a Ranger goalie, well, usually with the, the opponent shooting at a Ranger goalie, not the other way around, but uh, that was obviously a. A huge save during the '94 Stanley Cup Finals, so uh, um, you know that that has been referenced through the years uh, when when Rangers have faced important penalty shots for sure.
1: The sports is here with Kenny Albert. Just a couple of minutes left. You can find Kenny on Twitter at Kenny Albert. Um, I want to ask you a couple more questions about the Rangers before I let you go. They've been they're having a fantastic season in first place in the Eastern Conference right now. Uh, they've won the Winter Classic. They're getting a great season from Gabrick, who's staying healthy. Richards has been everything we expected him to be in the offseason when everyone swooned over the opportunity of signing him. What are some other things that have gone right for the Rangers and given them the success that they've had so far this season? Well,
0: I, I think guys, a lot's gone right, and, and it starts with the coaching. Uh, John Tortorella and his staff have done a tremendous job the last couple of years uh, in st- installing the system uh, that the team plays. They're a hard working team. Uh you know, they, they do have some superstars, you mentioned Gabrick and Lundqvist, but it's not a team filled with superstars. They're hard working guys, you know, from the first line right down to the fourth. Uh defensively they've been terrific. Not only has Lundqvist had his best season, but uh, the backup Marty Biron, a guy that uh, you you were very familiar with from yes, the days of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's nine and two with a couple of shutouts and three assists I might add. So uh, Marty's had a great year. Uh, defensively, even without Mark Stahl, who missed the first 36 games with a concussion, came back for the Winter Classic. Uh, other guys have stepped up. Dan Girardi's an all-star this year. Ryan McDonough, Michael Belzato, a tremendous bounce-back year after he was sent to the minor leagues last year. And then up front, you know, they're just a hard-working group led by Ryan Callahan, their captain, who's from Rochester. Yeah. And, uh, you know, other guys like Brandon Dubinsky and uh, Derek Stepans having an outstanding second season cabaret. Uh, among the league leaders and goals. So it's it's really been a a collaborative team effort, but I think a lot of it has to do with the hard work and the the dedication uh, instilled by the coaching staff.
1: I want to ask you something about Ryan Callahan, and if you think this is a stretch, you go ahead and say it. But, you know, a lot of people have been very critical of Chris Drury's time in New York, and obviously there was a lot of injuries, um, you know, never won the Cup or came close to it, a lot of disappointment. But I wonder if Drury's time in New York is going to be best judged by the career that Ryan Callahan has in the sense that, you know, Drury's time in the locker room as the captain of that team and being an American like Callahan and playing a similar game, you know, with penalty killing and blocking shots and things like that, did Callahan's ability to learn how to make his game an NHL game from Chris Drury, is that something that's going to be a little underrated about Drury's time there? You know, do you think that Callahan's play is maybe something that Jury watches from time to time, and is kind of proud of?
0: I agree with you one hundred percent. In fact, I mentioned it on a radio show earlier today. Um, I absolutely. didn't hear that. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, I, I didn't think you did. Okay, uh, it was down in Nashville, so I didn't know if you picked that one up. <laughs> no, but I didn't. Uh, absolutely, I think you know he watched Chris, you know, from from close by. Uh, during his time with the Rangers, as well as with the 2010 U.S. Olympic team. Right. And uh, I think a lot of the characteristics uh, that Ryan has uh, are similar to what we saw from Chris. And while his time with the Rangers you know, might have been disappointing from a production standpoint, um, I think his legacy has definitely uh, lived on in, in the next captain, Ryan Callahan.
1: All right, the sportscasters are, again, lucky enough to have Kenny Albert on the show. One last thing, Kenny. Um, I'm wondering what 2012 holds in store for you as a broadcaster. Obviously, you're going to be hoping that the Rangers make a nice playoff run here. But, I mean, other things. Are you going to be doing playoff games, again, for the NBC Sports Network? Are you going to be doing some basketball? Let us know where we're going to be able to find Kenny Albert here in the next eight months or so before football gets started again.
0: Well, uh, for the next couple of months, uh, Ranger Hockey on the radio, as you mentioned, and, and uh, we'll see what the what the playoffs bring. Um, you know, this team certainly has the capabilities of, of going a long way. They haven't played Boston yet, and they're certainly, uh, uh, you know, coming off the Stanley Cup, and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of the uh, bar that most other teams in the NHL would like to uh, measure themselves against. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens come playoff time. But uh, hopefully some playoff games on the, on the TV side, like you said, and uh, then we'll look forward to some baseball with Fox in the summer, and uh, can't wait till football starts up again in September.
1: Sounds like you got a packed year ahead of you. Um, thanks for being a, a friend to the show and being willing to make time today. We really appreciate that, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up sometime in the near future.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it as always, and uh, hope to catch you in a couple of weeks when the Rangers are up in Buffalo.
1: All right. Thank you, Mister Albert. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Okay. Thanks, guys.
1: Alright, well one reason why I tried to not be a baby about the Saints losing last week is because I know many of my friends and family here in Buffalo, New York would have died to be in the position I was in last week <laughs> and watching my team play a playoff game.
2: 13 years now, or 12 years. It
1: has been since the 1999 playoffs. The Music City Miracle is the last time the Bills have played in a playoff game. It's the longest streak in the entire league And Don and I are going to attempt to try to give you our kind of blueprint, our game plan, what we would do to change it. And uh, we've been toying with this top 10 list today. And again, one of these weeks we're going to do one where the order matters. Again, I don't necessarily, I know my order doesn't necessarily matter. Basically, the approach I took is I put 10 things down that I think if these things happened, it would most... Most prepare the Bills to potentially be a playoff team.
2: Yeah, I have no order at all here. Mine was very uh,
1: stream of consciousness, so it's going to be a little disjointed. All right, so here it is. The Sportscasters 10 this week. How to make the Buffalo Bills a playoff team. Don, why don't you give us your first thing?
2: All right, I'll start with a few things here that uh, they should maintain. Number one is sign Fred Jackson. I know uh, his injury maybe wasn't directly responsible for their downfall this year, but it sure didn't help. They couldn't find... I shouldn't say that. Spiller had flashes where he looked like he might be the guy they drafted, but for the most part they need Fred Jackson, and if they're not going to sign Fred Jackson, uh, they're going to have to pick somebody up to replace him because I don't think that was uh, Tashard's choice. So just sign him. He's a good room guy. He's a good example of a player that you turned into something, and he's been a long time, relatively speaking, Bill, so keep him here.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see how many cross over because the number one on my list, and I think it's the most important thing, On their Bills' radar this offseason, I just said make sure Fred Jackson is healthy. Uh, The Bills need his leadership and his talent to improve, and I think that they need to make sure that he's happy. They need to give him a contract that's fair. They have a reputation for not keeping their own players. They need to stop that right now. And the number one thing on my list is also keep Freddie Jackson and make sure he's happy.
2: My next thing, sticking with guys they should keep, uh, Ryan Lindell. I know kickers aren't necessarily the sexiest position in the league, but once you have a good one, keep them. Because everybody has a decent one, and the teams that don't, it's a very glaring problem. Lindell going down was a glaring problem this year that nobody the Bills signed could stay healthy or kick the field goal through, kick a ball through a goal post. So
1: sign Lindell. Get him back. I'm going to stick with this theme. I'm going to say that they need to re-sign Stevie Johnson Number one, receivers don't fall off of trees. The Bills happen to go against a guy twice a year named Raul Rivas. He's a guy that Stevie Johnson will be able to line up against and know that he can beat. Right. And I'm going to get to the division later, and that's going to be important. As a second to that, I think that they need to sign a second receiver, and I got a guy in mind. And I'm going to throw out Robert Meacham. I think that Robert Meacham is different enough from Stevie Johnson in the sense that he can extend the field. He's fast. He makes plays down the field, and he'd be a good complement to Stevie Johnson, and he would make Stevie Johnson a better number one receiver. Kind of replace maybe what
2: they lost in Lee Evans. I mean, not, not the current Lee Evans, but right. the Lee Evans when he was Lee Evans. Right.
1: Stevie Johnson is definitely a more possession type of a guy. I don't you know, he's good. You can move him around the field. You can play him in the slot. You can play him on either side. And Robert Meacham's a guy that you can line up on the other side who can stretch the field a little bit, catch a bomb now and again, the exciting plays that maybe the Bills lack. And I would think that that would be a fantastic one-two punch at wide receiver. Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to need weapons. And if you don't sign Stevie J- Johnson and say instead you just sign Robert Meacham, well, then you don't have, I don't think, a you know, a true number one receiver i think you know you'd have just a number two so i hope they don't go that route where you know they try to sign a middle of the road guy and let stevie johnson walk because i just don't think that would work
2: right and he's not asking for top end number one money i guess the rumor was around seven and a half so if you can get him down to six and a half or something it's very reasonable for his production um i basically said the same thing and i'll add to that by saying also scott chandler is going to be a free agent this year and he was absolutely huge for the bills uh by like the fourth game of the season he already had more touchdowns from the tight end position than they had all of the previous season. So you either have to sign Scott Chandler or a comparable free agent. And if you're going to go out and get a guy that's comparable, you might as well just get take get the guy that knows the offense already and it has a good rapport with uh with Fitzpatrick. So Scott, sign Scott Chandler.
1: Yeah, I have a similar one. Uh, Scott Chandler is a free agent. I think he's very important. The tight end position is very important in the league. So I think the Bills need to make a decision. Do they think that Scott Chandler is good enough, or do they want to try to improve that position? If they think they need to improve it, there's two names out there that I think would fit in really well. One is Fred Davis. One is Jermichael Finley. Those are star players at the position. You might need a star at tight end now to challenge the better teams in the league. If you look at the teams that are standing going into this weekend, you have Vernon Davis in San Francisco. You have Rob Gronkowski. You have Todd Heap. You have Baylor. There's all kinds of tight ends, you know. So I think the Bills need to either keep Chandler or sign someone else. Fred Davis, Jermichael Finley would be great additions.
2: Jermichael Finley is interesting because he must think of himself. I mean, athletes always you have to have be a little bit full Might be yourself. a buyer's market for him. Right. Because he didn't uh, have the best year. He didn't have a good year, and he's – Maybe he thinks that it's just going to be the way that offense runs. It's not going to be tight end friendly, but the Bills could definitely show this year they could be a tight end friendly offense. Uh, staying on the offensive side of the ball, left tackle. Uh, again, another guy. For a 6-10 and 10 team, they're going to have to do more than just re-sign all their same players. That said, uh, it's been real fashionable as Bills fans, and if you listen to talk radio around Buffalo, just to immediately blame all their problems on the offensive line. Well, the offensive line was actually really good this year. They gave up the fewest sacks in the league. They had a great running back in Fred Jackson before he went got hurt. C.J. Spiller ran fairly well after uh, Jackson got hurt. But they are going to lose their left tackle in Demetrius Bell if they don't re-sign him. So you either have to sign him or find a replacement. I'm sure you could do a little better than Demetrius Bell. But like I said, they weren't as bad as people tend to uh, nail on the offensive line for. They were actually pretty good.
1: I'm going to touch on the offensive line a little bit as well. I think the Bills need to make another good pick in the first round. I think that that's really important this year. Darius was a good pick last year. I think he's on his way to being a real impact player on the team. Uh, There's a guy I really like in the draft, and his name is Riley Reef. He's from Iowa. He's 6'6", 300 pounds. He's an offensive tackle, and I think he's a safe pick. I read an article recently about how the number 10 pick has been kind of cursed the last 10 years or so. Blaine Gabbert was the number 10 pick last year. He hasn't worked out. Stay away from running backs. Don't draft any running backs. You don't want Trent Richardson or anything like that. And uh, Pick an offensive tackle. Upgrade that position. Riley Reef is there. He's a monster from Iowa, and it's reasonable to think that he might be there around 10. My number seven
2: is... Stop drafting running backs. <laughs> so that's all I have to it. Uh, they've got tons of needs. I mean, if Stevie J- uh, Stevie Johnson does go, you need a receiver. You need a defensive end. You need linebackers. You need, you need a lot. You don't need a running back. Don't draft a running back, and people will be happy.
1: All right. Ryan Fitzpatrick is ugly. He needs to shave his beard. <laughs> um, also. He has shaved. Uh, good. He needs to keep shaving. Yeah. Because he's hideous. Also, uh, the Bills can get out of his contract in one season. The problem with that is, is that they can't wait another season. I think they need to suck it up and pay two guys this year. Um, they neither, they need to do one of three things. They either need to sign a veteran like a Matt Flynn and just say you know open competition, or you need to draft someone in the fourth, third, fourth, or fifth round like someone like for example TJATF last year someone that you can you can start building towards um or you need to make a trade for someone but i just don't think that Ryan Fitzpatrick is good enough like i said they did they did sign him after his good first half of the season but i seen enough in the second half to not want to trust him and they only have to pay him they there's an out after one more season right. so i think they need to suck it up and bring someone in next year. You only are going to be on the hook for paying two quarterbacks one year. Um, I agree. One of my
2: things on my list is draft a QB. Again, you pointed out if you go and get a guy like Matt Flynn, you don't have to obviously draft one. But I'm not against them drafting one in the first round. Uh, Make the competition start this year. Or if you want to, Aaron Rodgers sat behind fire for, what, three years? Yep. And he's done pretty well for himself. So, You can't be afraid of Ryan Fitzpatrick's feelings. He's been something of a nice story, but you really don't owe him anything other than the money you're already paying him. So go get a QB and don't worry about the way he feels.
1: You know, this is just an aside, but the Bills were kind of hurt by the fact that Landry Jones and Matt Barkley decided to go back to their respective colleges. If they didn't, one of my things absolutely would have been make sure you get one of of the top four quarterbacks in the draft. And they probably would have. Right. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, So that's why I didn't necessarily stress drafting. But I think one way or another, they need to find another quarterback on the roster. It sounds like the Colts and probably Browns will pick up the top top two guys. Right. All right. Buddy Nixon and Chan Gailey need to stay awake past 8 o'clock p.m. (laughs) Uh, Some of the stuff in the league does happen past that time. And I know these guys are older and, and they like to get into bed early, but. They're gonna to have to stay awake past eight p m All
2: right my next three points are all on the defensive side of the ball. Actually, the rest of my points are number two uh let the defensive players know that it's all right to hit the other team's quarterback uh I'm not sure if they're not coached to do that, but they certainly don't
1: it's still legal.
2: One place yeah. you will never see the bills in any photographs is in the other team's offensive backfield uh we just they get no pressure on the quarterbacks. It's embarrassing and almost laughable sometimes how much time the other quarterbacks have. So fix that. I don't know if they have to I mean they're going to get a new defensive coordinator. So I don't know if they're going to ha- if they're going to have to implement more blitzes to kind of overcome their maybe physical
1: weaknesses or whatever, but they have to get more pressure on the quarterback. All right. Here's one here for you. Stop letting homegrown talent end up on other rosters. Imagine if the Bills would have aggressively pursued Rob Gronkowski a few years ago, who yeah. was a third-round pick. James Starks and Mike Williams are example of players who have had an impact in the league that could have been drafted later. It's nice to have Naaman Roosevelt on the roster, but whoever the next Buffalo-born football player is, he needs to be a Buffalo Bill. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Bill, the Sabres have done a decent job at this in building, uh, you know, in getting local talent, and it, it creates excitement. It... it, it gives people another reason to cheer for your team. And when you see people who have grown up in your backyard being picked, not in the first round, but Rob Gronkowski is picked in the third round. How is he not a Buffalo Bill? Yeah. My fourth thing,
2: uh, I already touched on how they need to draft a lot of positions. When you draft defensive players, just draft them to play their positions. Uh, I've had enough watching Bill's players get drafted and then put at different positions. Aaron Maben playing linebacker. uh, Chris Kelsey playing. Mostly guys playing linebacker out of their position. And my next point kind of touches on this too, so I'll get back to that. But draft guys that do what they do. Don't just draft them based on their physical ability. Get guys that have played the position.
1: I think the Bills need to improve linebacker, and Curtis Lofton is a free agent and would fit in great here. They never kind of made up for the tackles that Paul Pizlosny made. I know he wasn't a very huge impact player. He didn't make huge plays. I think Curtis Lofton is a better version of him. He makes plays from side to side. He's a self-made pro. He's someone I've watched for a long time. He played at Oklahoma and then has played for the Falcons the last few years. I don't think he's going to command huge, huge money, and I think that the Falcons will probably be aggressive in trying to re-sign him, but he's a guy who will look great in a Bills uniform, and that's definitely a position that they need to improve.
2: One of the things I wrote down uh, my next of my top 10 is just linebackers. I agree with what you said, not necessarily, uh, like you said, Paz wasn't necessarily an impact player, but they signed Barnett to replace him. And it'd be hard to argue that he was much of an impact player either. I think Paz Lesni was probably a better run stopper and Barnett's probably a better pass defender. So you kind of gave up one thing for the other, neither being all that great. So somehow improve the linebackers either via the draft or free agent market.
1: All right. I have two left. Uh, so I guess this is number nine for me. Win division games. Yeah. The Bills need to challenge the Patriots with the same vigor that the Ravens played the Steelers games this year. Beating the Patriots once and then getting blown off the field the second time, that's not good enough. Right. Losing to the Jets consistently. Losing to the Dolphins. You can't do that. You need to start winning some division games. Especially losing to a Jets team that just wasn't very impressive this year. The Bills are the laughingstock of the AFC East. They consistently finish in last place. When we talked about them in the beginning of the year, we said you gotta win the Jets games. You gotta beat Miami. They didn't necessarily do that, at least not consistently. Did they sweep anyone in the division? No. I mean I know they beat the Patriots one time. Right. Uh, did they beat the that, Jets might that might have been their only division win. I know they lost to the Dolphins here. Right. The point is, is they just did not do enough in the division. They need to start doing more. If you're gonna be a playoff team, you need to win division games. It's okay to lose one once in a while, but you, you need to you need to do better in the division. The scary thought is, uh, yeah, they were one and five in the division, so the yep.
2: Patriots the only game.
1: Uh, the scary thought is, and that by the way, if they beat the Dolphins and the Jets once, they have nine wins and maybe they're a playoff team.
2: Right. Uh, talking about the Jets, there is some thought. I mean, this is just early, early rumblings. Obviously, it all is in the Colts' hand, but. What better place for Peyton to go? If you're Peyton Manning, why not go to New York City and play play with the Jets? You have a good defense. You have some decent receivers. You just had a quarterback there that couldn't get him the ball. So
1: All right, I want to have a number eleven then. Make sure Peyton Manning doesn't end up in New York. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my last thing
2: here is uh enough with a three four already. Um you have two solid defensive tackles, but uh Darius isn't really an he's not a QB rushing end. If you put Kyle Williams next to Darius, they're going to be a tough team to run on. Go out and draft those defensive ends or sign a free agent defensive end. Linebacker's probably the weakest position on the field, and you're putting four of them out there consistently. Stop it. Uh, hopefully the new coordinator just, just play the 4-3. Just
1: because you get beat by the 3-4 doesn't mean it's the best defense to run. Ralph Wilson, this is my last thing. Oh, no. Ralph Wilson, he needs to sell the team to someone with a pulse. Yeah. Enough with the weekend at Bernie's owner. Um, how about Terry Pagula and Jim Kelly and some group of investors? Absolutely. I mean, I might be dreaming here, but once the Bills establish that they're going to be here for the long term, there's not going to be as many empty seats in de- December as there is right. now. You know, people are scared. And I think that people wrestle all the time with should I buy tickets? And make Ralph Wilson richer so that he can just leave, have the team ripped from us when he dies, or you know, do I need to buy tickets because I want to make sure he know people know that we still want this team? That needs to all be settled. I'm sick of hearing about. They're going to go to trial. They're going to go here. The Buffalo is an NFL market. It's been for a long time, and it needs to stay that way. I know we can't compete with luxury boxes and things like that, but we have a rich guy who enjoys being part of the sports scene here. Let's get him interested in the Bills.
2: Not, not to mention there was <laughs> another rich guy that just got out of the sports scene that did kind of say if there was a danger of the Bills moving, he might step in and help out, and that was Tom galassano I mean, people kind of soured on him a little bit as a Sabres owner just because he was a little bit of an absentee so owner. So get
1: some of these guys together. It doesn't have to all be on Ramula right. or all be on Galassano. There's no reason those two guys couldn't partner up a little bit. Right. And Put an investment group together. There's enough people here, you know, and Jim Kelly has been talking about doing this, and hopefully he has some rich people around. I, I, I've even heard, you know, Shooter McGavin is even <laughs> yeah. one of the guys, you know, which is kind of funny, but get get this group together and ralph enough with you know the stubbornness sell the team before you die just think about it you're dead already you've been lucky enough to (laughs) own an nfl team as long as you have you offer nothing you never are at the games you live in detroit what's the point
2: right and the thing about uh finding these owners is with the nfl the only reason not to own an nfl team is because you can't buy an nfl team Yes. No team in the league loses money. I mean, even teams like Jacksonville that have to put tarps over all their seats and stuff, or a good chunk of their seats, those teams are still making money because of TV deals and uh, merchandise and whatever else. There's n- nobody in their right mind wouldn't want to own an NFL team if they just had the money to do it. So it sounds like there's guys out there to do it. Let them do it.
1: All right. That's that. That's our ideas. That's how we're going to improve the Bills make them a playoff team. Let us know what you thought. Give us an email at sportscasters at gmail.com. We're going to take a break and be right back. Our next guest is from Queens, New York, and is a graduate of Amherst College. He went on to earn a master's degree from Stanford University. After college, he began his career as a sports writer and columnist for the Miami Herald, the San Jose Mercury News, and the now defunct sports daily, The National. He is a world-class writer that has won many journalism awards, including the 1987 Associated Press Sports Editor Award for feature writing. In 1990, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer and the author of the famed Backpage column, a warm sports Casters, welcome to the esteemed and talented Phil Taylor. How are you doing tonight?
4: I'm doing well. Thanks for the uh Stanford Fight song there. Yeah, I'm sorry right. I couldn't now.
1: find the Amherst College one. I tried. <laughs> I tried, but you know, some of the small schools, I don't know if they even have fight songs or what, but
4: Yeah, it's it's pretty obscure. Uh, I I could sing it for you, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't think you want me to.
1: We had uh your colleague Jim Trotter on earlier and he went to Howard College and I was lucky enough to find that one. So, really? Yeah, so wow. not that that's bad. Some good, that's some good research. Yeah. Well, we're really excited to have you on today. You know, our podcast has kind of grown through the interviews we've done with some of the great writers and personalities at Sports Illustrated. And in the second season, we're kind of trying to maybe reach out to some of the guys we were maybe a little bit intimidated to reach out to before. And (laughs) (laughs) the reason I say that is just because, you know, when you think of the back page column at Sports Illustrated, you kind of view that as some of the most hallowed ground in sports journalism. And at the beginning of the last season, we were able to talk to Joe Piznanski. And at that time, he was going to be doing it, I think, every other week with you. Since then he's kind of taken a step back and focused his work on his book, and you've been doing the back page column ever since. So right. I wanted to talk to you about that, and the first thing I wanted to ask you is this: you've been a sports writer for a long time, as I mentioned in your intro, but writing the back page column is it's a lot different, isn't it? What have you liked about it? We actually talked to Chris Ballard last week, and he said that he was in the rotation, and he just didn't like it. he just couldn't couldn't write that kind of a story. He didn't feel like he, he was as good with a little bit less space. How have you liked it? How has it been different from other stuff you've done in your career? And kind of what is the approach that you take to try to get a back page column each week?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly couldn't understand Chris's feeling about it. And um, and I think Joe Posnansky, um, you, you know, he he's so prolific. He has about, you know, 40 other outlets for his writing with books and, and his... Uh, and his blog and things like that, in addition to to s i stories, so um I think he it was maybe just one more thing on his plate that maybe he 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 didn't want to deal with or, or didn't really fit into his into his work schedule um for me, it's been perfect i I love writing it, and maybe that's why I'm kind of the last man standing on uh, uh you know doing the point after there is no more rotation um and and it may it may be that it hit me just at the right time in my career. You know, as you mentioned, I I have been a a sports writer for a long time. I've been at SI. This is my, starting my 22nd year at SI, which is amazing to me. I I can't believe that that the time has gone that fast. But in that time, I've done a lot of different um, types of things for the magazine, worn a lot of different hats. I was a started out as the college basketball notes guy. You know, when I first, first started and writing the inside college basketball column and and then uh, covered the NBA for a good while during most of, most of Michael Jordan, the Bulls' run. I was the, the main NBA beat writer and, and wrote a lot of feature stories and, and kind of trend stories about uh, about the NBA, writing every week, um, and then kind of segued into doing some features, some longer features and things like that. And uh, so I kind of felt as though uh, I, had, I had done everything there was to do at SI in a way. I'd, I'd written every kind of story. Um, and then the point after came along, and that was kind of the one thing that I had never done, and um, it really uh, appealed to me partly because, you, as you say, it is kind of hallowed ground. I think Rick Riley turned that into a real destination um, for a long time, uh, the back page of the magazine. And so when I had a chance to do that, I found that it was just kind of the it was kind of refreshing to me because I, I'd, you know, the challenge of writing something that was meaningful and worthwhile. In just one page, uh, kind of, you know, kind of uh, distilling subjects and topics down to their essence, and, and trying to be entertaining or thought-provoking or, or, or touching or humorous um, in just that one page was a real challenge for me. And um, I I don't think I've I've always hit it, but I think I've gotten better at it. And I think um, for me, it's um, it's uh, I. I it feels like it fits for me at this point in my career, I guess.
1: You know, I've been a subscriber to the magazine for a long time, and ever since Riley was writing the column at some point, I started to always read the back page first. And, you know, even when after I left and there was a rotation and trying different things, I still, just for whatever reason, it's, it's a good way to to get into the flow for that week's magazine. You know, it's short. It only takes a minute. The second, usually I get it out of the mailbox, even if I don't read the whole edition, I'll read that article real quick. Have you heard from other people that like to start the magazine from the back? and Or even if they don't and they read it last, does that, is the spot where it is, does that change your approach at all? Because it's, if it was just in the middle somewhere, would it change the approach at all? Is there anything that you're trying to accomplish because you know that it's going to be one of the last things people read before the next well, issue comes out?
4: Well, yes. I mean, de- definitely. I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of readers who have told me that the, uh, the back page is the first place they go when they get the magazine before they look at you know, I mean, they look at the cover and then they go to the back page. Right. You know, they don't look at the table of contents. They don't, they don't look at scorecard the, you know the first essay or the, or the main story or the big bonus piece as we call it that uh, is usually close to the back of the of the magazine they, they go a lot of them go to the back page and i I attribute that to a few things. Um, one is that Riley made it, made it such. I mean he was so good for such a long time and, and usually very funny. And and I think that, that drew people in. I think part of it is also just the fact that it is on the back page, and so it's it's a constant. When you get your magazine, you don't have to page through the adver- advertisements to get to the table of contents or to find scorecard. Or you know, there's 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 nothing else in the magazine that is so set and so you know predictable as the As the uh, placing of the point after, so I think that draws people too that they know that 's something they can go and just look at it quickly and you know and, and to to be honest, I think some readers feel as though even if it 's terrible it 's only going to take me a minute and a half to read it so i 'm going to take a look um, and and then I hope that to 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 some degree um, the work that i 've done back there draws them as well but but, uh, so there are lots of reasons that people do go to the back page, but they definitely do, and I hear that a lot. Um as far as how I approach it, I would say that it's a good question whether it, it affects the, what I write and how I write it. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but as you were asking the question, I, I, I kind of realized that, yeah, I think I do, because I know that for a lot of people it's either the first thing or the very last thing. And so I want to leave that either, I feel as though I'm either kicking off the magazine for them, or I'm like the last, you know, I'm dessert, you know, and I, and I right. want them to leave feeling as though they've had a good meal. And so um, I do, in some ways, try to find topics that I think will give people, you know, it will be in some way kind of uh, pr- provocative for people or touching or, or humorous and, and especially the, the ending, those last, like that last, paragraph of the point after um i probably spend more time on that than any other part of the of the piece um each week because i kind of want to leave them with like a last line or two that uh is either clever or will make them make them chuckle or make them think or or just you know give them that so that they will walk away or turn away from from that page thinking ah that was good i that was that was 90 seconds or two minutes well spent
1: you know, when you mentioned Riley's column, and you mentioned how it was always very funny and what a great job he did with it. When I look back and think about it, one thing that I think I always appreciated about it was how he wasn't afraid to be personal. It felt like if you read that column week after week after week, you really got to feel like you knew Rick Riley. You know, he wasn't afraid to write about his daughter's softball or, you know, things like teams that he coached or whatever. Since you've been doing it, have you been trying to – get your personality into it a little bit more? Are you trying to develop a similar relationship with the readers, or would you prefer to maybe just be out of it and and, and write stories that kind of just, you know, stand on their own alone, alone from week to week?
4: Well, you know, when I started, I was pretty much uh, my philosophy was that I was not going to make this about me, you know, and it, it was gonna I, I I agree with you that, that Rick was great at he developed a real relationship with the readers, and they liked him just as a person. And so, and I think that that was, was part of his genius. I would say, I'd go so far as to say. And um, in a, and I was so kind of dead set on not trying to be Rick Riley, you know, because I'm not. I'm not. I don't. I. There are very few people who can make make people laugh in, with the printed word. I think that's one of the hardest things to do as a writer is to make someone laugh just from what they read. You know, usually when you think about how pe- what makes people laugh, it's something that they see or something that they hear. It's the inflection, it's the delivery, it's verbal and visual. And to make someone laugh just with the printed word is really difficult, and Rick did that, and that's, I mean, that is amazing to me that he was so successful at that. And I knew that I was probably not going to be able to match that. So i I, I think I went in the opposite direction when I started, feeling as though I'm not going to try to be... I'm not going to bend over backwards to be funny. If there's something amusing, I'll go for the joke. But I'm not going to try to be Riley, and I'm not going to try to inject myself into everything. Um, and because I, I felt as though that was that was also a little bit Riley esque, and I wanted to kind of be different. And then I found that um, that that occasionally certain things just lent themselves to the first person and to bringing myself into it and my reaction to things. And I wrote a column. Uh, oh, probably in the first, I don't know, two or three months that I was doing The Point After, I wrote a column about coaching, about youth coaching, and about how I had coached. I've, I've coached my kids in a million different sports over the years, and I wrote some, a column with some of the anecdotes, some of the funny things that had happened, and I, it was called uh, Confessions of a Coaching Alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Confessions of a Coachaholic. I recall and, it. Yeah, and I, and I was just, you know, that I was hooked on coaching and I loved it and, you know, just the funny things that happened. And we got so much response from it. I still get um, emails from people who, uh, who read it in the dentist's office recently or, or came across it or, or clipped it out and, and reread it again. And it, it really just struck a chord with them. And they seemed to really appreciate the fact that I had written about my, my own experiences and it maybe humanized me a little bit for them. And I, I really recognize that connection. And since then, I've been, you know, a lot less hesitant about uh, about writing things that um, have to do with my own with my own life. I, I'm I'm careful about it because I I really don't want it to be. I, I'm not going to be presumptuous enough to think that readers care about everything that I do or or every opinion that I have. But um, if it's if it's uh, if there's if there's a good reason, I think it can be compelling in some way. Um, I will I will inject myself into it, and I I never thought that I would when I started out doing
1: this. You mentioned the uh, the article about your coaching, and I, that might be the one. But I wonder, is there an article that you've written for the back page that you really think you know? You thought to yourself after maybe after it ran or after the responses, yeah, that's what I want this to be. That that was the that was the one I got it right that time. Or you know, does anything stick out that way?
4: Um, yeah, there there are a few, thankfully, because I I think that um, there isn't one thing that I want the point after to be. I want it to be a lot of different things. I want it to be kind of something different every week. I don't want people to think, oh, that's where I go for the funny story, or that's where I go for the tear-jerking story, or that's where I go for the really opinionated story. I want them to feel as though that I'm going to go there and there's going to be something interesting, and I don't know how it's going to make me feel. Uplifted or sad or uh, or or you know appreciating a cop a complicated issue so um, so that there are a few different ones that I think um, hit for me in in one way or another one one was that coaching one uh, another one I think was the first i believe it might have been the first one I did, which was uh, it was called the Death of Cool and I wrote it as an obituary. For the idea of being cool, and about how athletes today are—you know—they celebrate and they jump around and they, you know, and and they are really emotional. And about how it's it's such a change from when I was a kid. And watching all of the the thing to to be was cool to be unemotional to be you know just uh, you kind know, of Walter Payton like
5: yeah
4: yeah uh, you know and I use people like like uh, Walter Payton or um Walter Frazier, Tom Landry, um, guys who were just the, the John Wooden the, the guys who just uh you never they never lost control, you know, they would never be overly happy or overly sad and I so I wrote about the, the death of cool and how you know what no matter what you think about the way athletes celebrate, you know, um it's they certainly aren't cool anymore, you know. And so I I wrote as, wrote it kind of as an an obituary for For the idea of cool, and um, and I I think that that was in in some ways that's one of the things I want the point after to be. I want to sometimes tackle an issue or make an observation, have have some insight, but present it in a different way. Like I didn't just want to say, isn't it a shame that these athletes today, you know, do all these touchdown celebrations and stuff. I wanted to kind of say say something like that but in a different way and writing it in the form of of an obituary i thought was creative and and people seemed to like it um and then there's there's one other another one that i wrote not too long ago and uh it was about um the uh it, it was about uh oklahoma state and uh the plane crash that they had 10 years ago okay and i i stumbled onto the to the fact that there was a uh uh, a guy who uh, for, who works on the radio broadcast for the Oklahoma State basketball team for their games, and he was supposed to be on this plane ten years ago, um, and he through a, a kind of series of circumstances, someone else filled in for him uh, on this on this road trip, and so that he this guy Joe wasn't on the plane, this other guy was, and the plane crashed, and the guy who replaced him died mm. was was killed on the plane. And and Joe, who should have been there, was was just devastated by it, racked with guilt over it, um, and went to see this man, the dead man's mother, to kind of apologize. And she totally forgave him; she didn't hold it against him at all. Kind of gave him absolution, and they went on to develop this um, relationship that was like mother son. Hmm. And so he he turned out to be kind of a uh, kind of a surrogate son for her. And uh, and you know it's just, it was just this kind of like incredible once in a lifetime story that you stumble upon, and and you know I, I'm not sure where else you would see a story like that. Um, uh, and, and to be able to to get a, a story like that and tell it in a in a compressed amount of space and kind of maybe you know affect people and, and touch people a little bit was was also fulfilling. So it's you know there's all sorts of different kinds of columns that that um, make me feel as though I haven't accomplished what I set out to do with the column but it's um but it but almost everyone in
1: a different way now you this might be like asking for the recipe to coke but how do you stumble <laughs> upon a story like that well you you constantly read and talk to people it, it's I mean it 's kind
4: of the essence of being a reporter I, I, and I tell people that I think where I really earn my money is is in finding the ideas and getting the ideas once I have the the idea and i, I then I can go about executing it and interviewing people and sitting down to the to the laptop to write, but it 's coming up with the ideas and so that that story um, I just stumbled on because I was talking to a radio broadcaster um, about something else at a basketball game, and that somehow that that crash story came up that it was the tenth anniversary, and he mentioned that uh, he thought there was a guy who should have been on that plane, and I just thought that was wow, that's interesting. Hmm. So I called oklahoma state and and eventually you know found someone who knew that the, the basics of that story and uh, and it, I developed it from there. so sometimes you just stumble on it in a conversation, sometimes you read a little tidbit in a uh in a newspaper um, you know online somewhere. Um, sometimes it's from talking to, uh, editors, um, in New York, uh, for the magazine. I, I live in the Bay area and I, I talk to, I have a, a main editor, Neil Cohen, who, um, who is in New York. And we just, sometimes if I'm stuck on a given week, I'll just call him up and we'll just start talking and hope, hopefully something will come out of it. And often it does. Um, so I tell people, I am always looking for my next idea constantly. Every, with everything I do, whether I'm watching TV or uh, walking down the street or working out at the gym or uh, or scanning every website and newspaper online that I can find, I'm just always looking for something that uh, that I can develop into a, a
1: column. You know, I spent a lot of time yesterday reading your work. Um, I knew that you were going to be on today, and I just wanted to get a better feel for for you as a writer. And I stumbled upon an article on the Sports Illustrated website that you actually wrote almost exactly a year ago. And you wrote about the 82nd birthday of Martin Luther King, and you, you had indicated that you had thought that he would be proud of the sports landscape today. And it was interesting that I found that article yesterday, as it was, I guess, the 83rd yeah. birthday then of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I was wondering from you is if you would change your mind at all. If you had to write that article again, this year, as far as sports goes and and race, do you think it was a good year, two thousand eleven, or a bad year? Do you think we made steps forward or steps back? Um, that's a
4: good question. I, I you know, as you were telling me about through the article, I, I do remember writing it, and um, i I, I guess my gut reaction was, hmm, I, I wonder what I was thinking back back then a year ago, because I. I, in some ways i don't think that um, like I, I don't think that, that dr King would be particularly enamored with um, the behavior of uh, of some african american athletes i mean you know um and and not just in in the past year but um you know i i, I think that one thing he would be and this may be different had he lived, but I think one thing that he he wouldn't be thrilled about is the lack of uh, for social conscience, I guess, for a better word, that, um, that, that, uh, a lot of African American athletes show. Um, I, I, I probably should have dealt more with that when I, when I wrote that, that story a year ago, really. But, um, you know, I, I think, uh, and this isn't just for black athletes, but for, for all athletes, there is, there's now become such a, uh, an emphasis on not just, you know, Playing well, it's your sport and winning a championship and those sorts of things. But so much is measured by what sort of endorsements you have, and you know whether you've uh, got your own reality show and how much attention you get. And you know, I don't think you'd be thrilled with uh, guys changing their name to Chad Ocho Cinco and things like that, or even Meta World Peace, frankly, <laughs> because it's such a uh, you know kind of a, a desperate grasp grasp for attention. Um, so I. Well, I think there have been great strides in some ways for black athletes. I mean, and for and for blacks and minorities in sports in general, uh, you know, we, we have minority owners now. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, it's not unusual to see, a, to see a, a black or Hispanic manager in baseball or a black coach in football. Black quarterbacks, you know, w- were once, you know, unheard of and now no one bats an eye. So, I think a lot of those things he would he would certainly be happy about, but I think the emphasis on um, publicity and profit over um, advancing social causes would uh, I think would disappoint him and and perhaps had he lived, he would have had an effect and, and that and we would see more athletes uh, can, doing things to help uh, help their community and to, uh, to advance social causes in the world rather than trying to be you know Get their next
1: Nike, you know, commercial. You know, as I, I was listening to you answer that question, I, I thought of another thing I learned, and that was that you really enjoyed a cover story you did in 1995 about petulant prima donnas in the NBA, and you, you had mentioned, and I think it was in your bio that I read it, that it was maybe your your favorite feature that you had written for SI. Is that what you? Is that what kind of what you're getting at? Can you can you even look back as far as 1995 to to people? Yeah. You know, not enough maybe. Um, Maybe not, not enough Jim Browns and and maybe too many Ocho Cinco's that kind of a thing.
4: Exactly. Yeah, that that puts it very well. Not enough Jim Browns and too many Ocho Cinco's. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think that's true. And I I, I probably I have something of a reputation for being harder on athletes, particularly black athletes, than, than maybe some some writers and and some and some fans um, because uh, I, I do think that you know it's, to whom much has been given much much is expected, and they. They have such a platform. They have. There's so much. They have so much ability, and, and with their resources, with their money, um, they have the opportunity to do so much. And some do. I mean, I don't want to act as though not, none do, but um, but yeah, that that story um, I think kind of got got at it a little bit. Um, and that was a, a time in which there were a lot of guys in the NBA: Derek Coleman and Kenny Anderson, and uh, lots of different guys who were, in one way or another, kind of like. Um, uh, flaunting authority and, and 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 you know skipping practices and coming late and demanding trades and this and that and it just seemed it it kind of had come to a head um, during that one season in '95 and I just wanted I, I I wanted to see athletes be a little bit mature more mature and you not know, as I say petulant prima donnas and I think I had a line in there about uh, you know being whinier than you know. A two-year-old at uh, at nap time, and, and they just seemed childish to me, and and I, I wanted them to grow up, and you know I, I think it's it's somewhat the same now, in some ways in some ways better, but um, but that's that's what I want from athletes in general, not just black athletes, but you know I I would just like to see them um, act a little bit much more mature and 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 recognize that they are. In, although they've worked to get where they are they're also very fortunate to be where they are and that they could they could use their position to do so much good beyond just you know trying to to win a championship or get a get an endorsement
1: you know not before we before we get too far ahead of it going back to your point about some of the progress that's been made i seen a stat the other day there's 28 african american players in the national hockey league this year and i was wondering like wow that's they're probably catching up to baseball practically you know yeah. so i yeah you know i thought that that was a good good sign of progress uh the sports Yeah, castors, I mean, that's are, amazing yeah.
4: but but the flip side of that is you know we just had uh there was just a a, a controversy about it. the a, banana w- yeah
1: yeah that was um, terrible you know
4: and the, yeah, the, and so it's you know it's there's good and bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the guy the guy didn't he I don't know if he was trying to get away with it or he said he didn't real he said that he didn't know what what you know what that was his reaction what why would right. that, why would people what's wrong with that you know so I don't right. know if he was really that stupid or if he was just trying to. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's himself. hard to know if you know, yeah. that
4: was just a lame defense, right? And,
1: but it's uh, but in some ways
4: it's encouraging that the NHL. I mean, he, the guy was he was given a game misconduct, ejected from the game, and you know, and it became a story. Uh, Twenty years ago, you know, like when there were just a handful of of black players, um, that that sort of treatment probably would have we never would have heard about it because it would have been so commonplace. So, right. yeah, I guess maybe that's progress.
1: The Sportscasters are here with Phil Taylor, the author of the back page column in Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter. And I wanted to ask you a little bit before we let you go about writing in this 21st century. Sports Illustrated has been very good, I think. I'm a big fan of reading the magazine on my iPad. I can get it earlier. It usually right at midnight on Tuesday nights. I can download it to my iPad. I love to read it that way. I think the illustrated part of Sports Illustrated really gets the shine on the iPad, um, and I've really enjoyed it. And I wonder, as someone who has written in the 20th century and now the 21st century, how do you like all the technology and and the way that things are changing changing in sports journalism? Uh,
4: you know, I really like it. I, I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm probably considered one of the dinosaurs. I'm I'm 51, so I've, I can certainly remember when. Um, you know, it was just the, you know just the printed word on the page, and you know you had you had your newspaper. You waited for your newspaper the next morning to read about the game and and things like that. And uh, I, I think it's so much better now as a, as a sports fan, um, being able to uh, you know access so much information really so quickly. And as you say, with Sports Illustrated, I think I think we were a little bit slow in in kind of jumping on the technological revolution. Um, and we're catching up now. I think we've done a, a pretty good job, and people can subscribe digitally. You don't ever have to wait for the magazine to arrive in the mail and you know curse your mailman because he you know kept the swimsuit issue for a couple <laughs> days before he delivered it. You know you can see it right now, and you can see not just that you can see videos of the swimsuit shoot and and you know extra um, you know interviews uh, that uh, you know with with uh, quotes that didn't appear in in the stories and things like that. So I think it's fantastic, I, and I, we're, I'm I'm still getting used to it. I, I love Twitter. Um, I, I've I've started to use it more, and you know I get so so much instant feedback from people on things that I write, and um, I can kind of disseminate information and you know promote stories that that both that I've done or that other people have done that I think are good, and and develop this. Um, you know this uh dialogue with with people, and you know we we talked about kind of developing a relationship with the reader on the back page. I think the ability to communicate with them uh directly through twitter and and other means it also helps helps me develop that that sort of relationship so there you know so I think overall it's fantastic, obviously there are dangers you know the, it, sometimes you can be. Uh, in such a hurry to get it out that you don't always get it right, mistakes can be made. Th- those sorts of things. Sometimes on Twitter or other forums, you you might say something before really thinking about it. So um, there there are dangers inherent in it. But I think the, you know overall the the ability it gives us as journalists to connect with readers, and the ability it gives readers and fans to find whatever it is they're interested in and kind of tailor their um, tailor their, you know, uh, sports information to their own needs. I think it's fantastic, and it, it's uh, it's been, a I think, a tremendous boon to uh, to sports journalism in general.
1: Yeah, and you can find Mr. Taylor on Twitter at si underscore phil taylor. A lot of the uh, SI writers have a similar format to their name on Twitter, and I like that. It makes it easy to easy to find everybody. You know, I, I know like Lee Jenkins is si underscore lee jenkins, and. Uh, you know, right. So I, I like that. Uh, that's pretty slick. Uh, the Sportscasters here with Phil Taylor. Just one more thing and we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, we're in the first month of 2012. And I just wonder, uh, is there anything that you have kind of thought about that you'd like to accomplish with this point after column going forward here this year? Are there any specific goals that you have set? Is there any stories you're interested in pursuing? Uh, what kind of 2012 are you hoping to have?
4: Well, I think you know I'd like to expand the point after in some ways. I've toyed with this, and I actually haven't even mentioned it to my editors yet. But I've toyed with maybe the occasionally lengthening the point after and making it, you know, maybe the back two pages or something like that, or or using. I'm I'm not quite sure, but because there there have been columns where I felt a little constricted by the by that space, and that, maybe that's a mistake, because people have come to really associate that one back page um, with the point after, but that's one thing I've been thinking. The other thing I've been thinking about is trying to, um, you know, break some news back there. Uh, uh, you know, I, I remember Rick Riley writing um, about uh, Michael Jordan uh, making a comeback, uh, you know, uh, after he after he retired from the Bulls the second time and he wrote uh, a, he had heard some some information and I, and I remember because I was covering the NBA at the time and he called me about it and he said he'd heard from some people that um, that Jordan might be interested in, in coming back um, you know and, and coming back to the NBA and he didn't know exactly how or with who whether it would be with the Bulls or whoever but he 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 really had some good sources that told him that and I said I that sounded really implausible to me. Um, but it turned out he was right. And Mm -hmm. he, he wrote a column that just kind of, uh, it didn't, it didn't actually break the news, but he was the first to say that this might happen. And, uh, and I remember other NBA writers laughing at it and he was criticized for it. And then, you know, a month or two later, Jordan did come back. So I, I, would like to, I mean, I, I I'm a reporter at heart and when you write a column, sometimes you end up, uh, sitting, you know, at your desk and pontificating from your, you know, from your, uh, from your office chair, and I don't want to—I don't want to fall into that um, into that trap. I would like to get out and report a little bit, and at some point start to ma- you know maybe be the first one to tell people about about certain things. So I'm I'm hoping to be uh, kind of turn out put my reporter's hat back on and maybe break some news with the with the column this year.
1: Well, Mr. Taylor, thank you so much. Uh, Thirty minutes went by really quick on my end. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, you can you can find him on Twitter at si. Underscore Phil Taylor, the back page of SI. What do you know? What the column is about in this week's uh, magazine? Do you re- recall?
4: Uh, we ha- well in this week's magazine, it's going to be about Tim Tebow.
1: Okay, <laughs>
4: so yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm the first one to write about Tim. Yeah, Tebow, I'm not I'm familiar
1: just, with him. I'm not familiar. Yeah, yeah,
4: I'm. I'm introducing him to the to the public. Yeah, you wrote, uh, I actually so. wrote it in the uh, in in sort of biblical as, as kind of a biblical parable, oh. like. In, so it's it's got some kind of Bible speak in it and. Uh, kind of telling a story, and what i what I think his whole this whole season of tebow has what we 've taken from it, what the meaning of Tim tebow is so uh, it's' i it 'll see if people like that gimmick, but um, was it kind of inspired
1: uh, was it kind of inspired by tebow three sixteen yes yes, yes indeed it. all <laughs> you right got it thank you very much for your time it, it was really great we We appreciate it so much, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. Great questions. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. We want to thank Phil Taylor, the Backpage columnist for Sports Illustrated, joining us today. wanted to update the book club. Uh, we mentioned last week that we'd be reading a Sports Illustrated book that was put out that is basically a collection of, Of hockey articles that have run in the magazine over the years. It's called Hockey Talk Hat Tricks to Head to Head, Hat Tricks to Head Shots, and Everything in Between. Um, I got started with it the other night and I read the first two articles. Uh, The first one was by Michael Farber and it's called Eight Seconds. It's something that appeared in the Best American Sports Writing series this year and it's kind of broke down the eight seconds that led up to Sidney Crosby winning the gold medal for Canada. Really, really cool article. And I also read an article from 2009 that also appeared in the Best American Sports Ring series that was called The Ever-Elusive Always. Uh, It was uh, a Bobby Orr article. And um, it was written by S.L. Price. Cool thing. Michael Farber and S.L. Price are both going to be on the show next week. So we're going to kind of move quick with this book. The following week is going to be the Super Bowl Spectacular show, and then the show after that will be the uh, first show in February, and that's when we'll pick out a new book. But next week, already confirmed, Michael Farber and S.L. Price will be on the show. So if you get a chance, check it out. Again, it's called Sports Illustrated Hockey Talk, Tricks to Headshots and Everything in Between. It's available at a bookstore near you. It's available on Amazon. It's available for the Kindle and also iBooks and the Nook. So definitely easy to find if you want it. We're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back with Don Banks. Our next guest is from Madison, Wisconsin, is a graduate of University of South Florida. Professionally, he has spent time covering the Minnesota Vikings for both the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He also spent time on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat for the St. Petersburg Times. In 2000, he began work at Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has appeared in two movies as a sports writer, 2006 Invincible and 2007's The Game Plan. He is a giant Boston Red Sox fan and is set to make a second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the great Don Banks. How are you doing today, Mr. Banks?
5: I am good, Stephen. Good to be with you, and I always love hearing my bio recited.
1: <laughs> we always try to pump our guests up as much with their uh, university fight song and you know, try to suck up a bit. Uh, there.
5: That, that's great, because I forget so much of that stuff. It was so far back. But thanks well, for the reminder.
1: Well, I know it's a busy time for you, and uh, last time you were on the show, it was a busy time for you as well, uh, right around the start of the season, so we appreciate the time that you have made for us today. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the show today looking back at the Saints and 49ers game, which obviously was a classic game. And even as a Saints fan and being on the losing end of it, I I have to admit, I really did enjoy uh, being a part of the game. And, you know, it's the second time that happened to me. I'm a big Oklahoma fan, too. And a few years ago, I had to admit that I did enjoy the Boise State game as well but uh, I wanted to spend a little time with you talking about the other games from the weekend and getting some of your impressions. We really haven't talked about the AFC at all, so I guess I just want to start with did anything surprise you or did you kind of expect uh, you know, New England to kind of roll over Tebow and the Broncos and for the um, Ravens to be able to handle Houston at home with all the injuries that Houston's had this year?
5: Well, as regards to New England, the pendulum swings have been so drastic with denver 's offense that so you, you almost don't don 't know what to expect from week to week with the broncos so i i wasn 't um, expecting a thirty five point blowout, but I thought New England had you know too many weapons for for Denver to defend um, it, it seemed like they just had a great plan. I think going up tempo with Tom Brady was exactly the right move because it kind of stunned Denver right from the outset and um it's pretty obvious that <laughs> New England kept its foot on the gas uh, throughout, kept Tom Brady in the game uh, until way past the point of uh, logic tells you. But um, they just have more ways to beat you offensively when, when Brady is really being protected and gets time to throw than than any defense can really stop. The key with them, Somebody's going to have to get a pass rush. We've seen what happens when Brady um uh, you know f- feels the heat and gets gets rushed specifically up the middle. And until that happens, maybe Baltimore can do it this week, but until that happens, you you got to like uh, New England's chances to at least put the game into the in the 30-point range. So it wasn't uh, surprising the outcome. It was just surprising the margin. Um, and then uh, the second game you wanted to talk about was the Green Bay and the Giants?
1: No, the Ravens and the uh, Texans. Oh. Well, that
5: was the game kind of the we expected, a defensive game. I, just, I was shocked by Baltimore's inability to do anything offensively in the last three quarters of that game. They scored three points. Uh, they had, I believe seven straight possessions where they either were stopped on downs or punted. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine Baltimore going into New England and playing like that and, and being able to, to hang on. It was really all about Baltimore's takeaways and their defense. So um, I think it's pretty pretty understood in Baltimore that they're going to have to challenge the field uh, with Flacco's passing to some degree in order to really let Ray Rice do what he does. And I think that's the key for Baltimore's chances in the AFC title game. I think Ray Rice has to have the kind of game that he had two years ago in the playoffs in Foxboro if Baltimore is going to really be competitive for four quarters.
1: Yeah, I know before most of us had sat down for that game, Ray Rice already had an 80 yard touchdown run. I think it was the very first play from <laughs> scrimmage. Um, you know, Joe Flacco is someone who was kind of outspoken before the playoffs started, before the game, and saying that, you know, Sure. If we win, no one's going to give me any credit. You know, almost saying that, you know, he doesn't get enough attention or credit, and he didn't really do much in the game to kind of warrant that. How important is his play going to be this week if they have a chance? You mentioned Ray Rice, and I, everyone agrees that he's very important. Can, can Joe Flacco play good enough if the Patriots want to play play this game in the 30s to keep up with that?
5: Uh, see, I think if the game gets into the thirties, it's probably not a Baltimore win. I think um, I think the the Baltimore defense has to kind of jump on New England early, the way they did in the playoffs two years ago. And then I think Flacco's got to have, he's got to make most of his plays. I think once Baltimore gets a little bit of a lead, um, I think Baltimore will probably start playing it pretty conservatively. to 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 begin the game, with Ray Rice being the focal point, where Flacco can really help his team is is if they can get a seven-point lead, if they could get a ten-point lead, then Flacco has to make plays to extend that lead. Um, And that was really kind of bad timing for Flacco to clear his throat and speak on his own behalf last week, because he really has had probably the most disappointing of his four seasons. And I I like Joe Flacco. I, I think he makes some decent points. He probably doesn't get enough credit for being the first quarterback in NFL history, to win a playoff game, his first four seasons for for really kind of keeping the you know keeping the the machine rolling to some degree on offense. The problem is, um, I thought timing wise, he should have waited until he won that first home playoff mm-hmm. game and played well. Then maybe if you want to say something before the AFC title game, or even better yet, before the Super Bowl. But you know, it it, it did not it it did not strike me as a good case of timing for him to start. Um, uh, kind of beating his own chest at that particular point.
1: We, You mentioned the Packers and the Giants, and I, I thought that was the most surprising game of the weekend. I went into to Sunday thinking that the Giants had a chance to win, but I had never imagined that it would kind of look as easy as it did. Part of me all day on Sunday was waiting for the Packers to kind of wake up, and they just never did. Were you surprised as yeah. I was how easily the Giants kind of handled them?
5: Yeah, I think we all were because, I mean, we saw a Packers team that really – uh, with with the exception of the one game at Kansas City that just did whatever it wanted to do all season on offense, and we knew that there were some deficiencies on defense. We knew they gave up too many big plays, and we knew that they could be passed on, but we've seen an offense that just always kind of made up for those those holes, and the, what the Packers looked like, and I, I know that they refute this, but what they looked like was a rusty team that had lost its um, that had peaked a little too early. And what I'm struck by is how many teams we seem to be seeing make a real run at a perfect season: the '07 Patriots, the '09 Colts, and now the 2011 Packers. They all made legitimate runs at perfect seasons. None of them won a ring. They all seem right. to peak too early. And it's really become, especially in the NFC, um, remarkable with four out of the last five top seeds all losing in the divisional round, with only the 09 Saints um, bucking that trend. It's it seems to me that the teams that go into the playoffs hot have a far superior. Um, chance than the teams that have the, the gaudy regular season, you know, best record. And, uh, the 07 Giants and, and the 2010 Packers and now this year's Giants again seem to kind of personify that. And it's not, it's not a great record to win 15 out of 16 games and, and realize that the last four teams that got to that level or better, meaning the 07 Patriots, none of them won the ring.
1: Do you think that the decision to rest Aaron Rodgers in the last week of the season contributed to how out of sync it seemed like he and his receivers were? And do you think that teams are going to maybe like avoid that in the future and maybe maybe at least play him a half or something like that? Well, I think the rest
5: versus rust uh, argument has gotten just kind of ridiculous. And 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 it was the same way with the 09 Colts. Now they made it to the Super Bowl, but again, they didn't play their best game in the Super Bowl. And uh it seemed like the 07 Patriots acknowledged now that they peaked too soon. Um and 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 didn't have their their best mojo going when they they reached the, the game against the Giants. They didn't rest, guys. They kept the the foot on the gas, but I I just think we've we've probably seen enough lessons in recent years of teams that kind of let the air out of the balloon a little early. Um, that I wouldn't I wouldn't rest guys. The problem is if you get anybody hurt, then you get killed for that too. So it's a, like it's, almost a uh, it's almost a it's almost a uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation that the head coaches are in.
1: You know, the NFC Championship this game this week is a little bit different, I think, than the Saints and the 49ers game, where that game was kind of a strength versus strength. It seems like this week's game is more of a strength on strength. And maybe I'm simplifying it too much, but do you think that the team that is most successful rushing the passing with their front four is going to be the team that ends up winning this game?
5: Well, I do because both teams, I think, are... are, um You know, coming off of last week, I think both teams are really confident throwing the ball, and the team that's able to disrupt that confidence and that timing and that rhythm is probably going to have the upper hand. Maybe force more of the you know the turnover factor. So, um, Alex Smith had the kind of game where he, I think he's he's going to enter this game as confident as he's ever entered any game, and. We we've already seen how many times Eli Manning this year has, has proven to be an elite quarterback as he said he was. Um and he went into Lambeau the other day and just he looked like he knew he could feel it and he was gonna he was gonna have a really accurate day and he and he did in in pretty rough conditions. So um I I I love both these two teams also for their fundamental defense right now because the Giants didn't play much of that all year, but in the last month they suddenly look like a really solid, fundamental uh, defensive team. That coverage is really solid and they're tackling. But I've never seen a team in recent NFL history tackle as well as the 49ers. Um, they just, when they hit you, you stay hit. Uh You don't get two or three yards past um, the point of contact. Um, juxtapose the tackling job that Green Bay did with the one that San Francisco did the day before. It's remarkable that defense is really... Um, really legit in San Francisco and I think it it does match two teams that kind of do the same same things um, even on defense.
1: The Sportscasters are here with Don Banks, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. His Twitter is at Don Banks. Uh, The Colts made the decision today finally to let Coach Caldwell go and you mentioned on SI.com today that you weren't surprised that they let him go but that they even considered keeping him. Uh, Where do the Colts go from here and what do you think that they're going to do in terms of the quarterback position? Or are we going to have to wait till March for that? yeah, yeah.
5: we are going to have to wait as much as we hate to wait in today 's yeah. uh news cycle we're going to have to wait and see if. Peyton Manning's, um, you know, neck heals up. I do think if it heals up, I think he's the Colts quarterback next year. I think Ursay has made it pretty clear that he feels a loyalty and an allegiance to Peyton Manning. It feels like he put the city on the map in regards to the NFL and he kind of turned a basketball state into a uh, football state and helped get that stadium built. So I think he feels a tremendous amount of allegiance to Peyton Manning and I think he'll bend over backwards to tr- if Peyton Manning can prove that, that he's healthy enough to play. I think they'll take Andrew Luck as well, but I think it'll be a situation where Andrew Luck, remarkably enough, will have to wait uh, his turn somewhat like Aaron Rodgers did in Green Bay. Um, we don't know yet if that'll be a good decision or a bad decision, but it certainly worked out for Green Bay. Um, I just I think Caldwell... You know, if you're going to make sweeping changes, it's probably, um not good to do a half measure. And I thought once Polian, the Polians left, uh, and were dismissed, I thought it was pretty logical to think if you're going to bring in a new general manager in Ryan Grigson, you're not going to saddle him with a coach who just went 2 and 14 and, and really struggled to find any answers or, or really stop the bleeding this year in Indianapolis. So I thought it was a logical move and I thought that, um Jim Mersey likes Jim Caldwell, respects him. The players do as well, but I think he probably knew it was better to turn that page and 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 not keep one foot in the past and and then still try to uh, steer a new course for the future.
1: Do we have any feel or idea yet where they might go in terms of interviews for this job? No, no,
5: I, I don't think so. But I I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the hot candidates that have been interviewed time and time again. And I'm talking about like Mike McCoy the denver offensive coordinator um if mike zimmer doesn't get the dolphins job i would think he would pro- possibly interview um you know there there are some proven veteran names out there like mike sherman the former packers former texas and m coach that probably will surface the name the, the name you you heard early on was marty morningwig the you know, eagles offensive coordinator who um Obviously, Ryan Grigson got to know uh, coming over from Philadelphia, but I don't think anybody knows what their list looks like at the moment. I just think it's going to have to be somebody on the off- offensive side most likely uh, because I think obviously the quarterback drama to come is the most important topic in Indy this year.
1: All right, last thing, and we'll get you out on this, and this is kind of out of left field, so if you don't have anything good, you can just tell me that. We've been spending a lot of time today talking about the Bills and what they could do to maybe be in the playoffs at some point in this century. Do you, do you have any... We made Excellent top ten Bills, huh? Do you have anything that you might throw out there that the Bills could do that could get them in the right, right direction and have Western New York watch a playoff game you know, before the next century?
5: Well, I actually like... I do actually like some of their nucleus. I don't think they have a big enough nucleus, but I do like some of the players. I'm not, I'm not sold on Ryan Fitzpatrick. I think we don't know if he was the first half quarterback or the second half quarterback this season. Um, So part of the answer, I would think, would giving would still be giving themselves another option at quarterback. And I think, you know, they disdained the draft last year. Obviously, there were some pretty big hits in the draft quarterback-wise between Newton and Dalton, uh, even T.J. Yates in the fifth round. So I think they really have to draft a quarterback in the first couple rounds this year to give themselves an option. Um, we've seen how quickly a young quarterback can take and elevate the entire team in, in Carolina and in Cincinnati this year. It's, it's the way of the NFL now that you don't have to um, – you don't have to be sentenced to two or three years of losing with a young quarterback, and I think the Bills finally have to get into that pool. Um, they don't have enough components around that quarterback, but this was a team that went 5-2, and two, and if they could have kept that alive, um, they could have been a playoff team this year. So I don't, I don't think they're as far away as, as they looked at in the last seven, eight weeks of the season, but I, um, I think that a young quarterback is a must.
1: All right, Don Banks. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at Don Banks. Pretty easy there. And thank you very much for your time. Only three games left. Enjoy them, huh? Thanks, Steven. Thank you. All right, last segment of the day here today. I want to thank our guests, Kenny Albert, Phil Taylor, Don Banks. You haven't heard Jim Trotter yet, but stick around after the hip. We are going to give you a bonus interview this week, another set of eyes and ears in the NFL playoffs, an interview that we did earlier with Jim Trotter. Um, Just another reminder, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Lake Sports. I'm at Diversity23. Uh, you can always email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. We're having a lot of fun with our new Tumblr page, which is the sportscasters.tumblr.com. And our website, where you can find all this information, is www.sports-casters.com. Like I said, um, you've already heard interviews with Kenny Albert, Phil Taylor, and Don Banks. After the hip, we're going to have a bonus interview with Jim Trotter. Make sure you check that out. Last thing of business today for that bonus interview is pick four. Uh, we did pretty well last week. We went five and three total. I went three and one. I had the Patriots minus 14 over the Broncos. Actually, the day before in the new Tumblr, I made predictions, and I predicted a 44-10 to 10 win for the Patriots. So wow. I basically nailed that one. It was 45-10. to 10. I had the Giants plus nine over the Packers. It was a 37-20 win. I had Drew Brees over 400 passing yards for a record. Third straight playoff game. He had 462. My only loss was the Saints minus four over the 49ers. 49ers won that game. 36, 32 real quick. Yes.
2: Let's get into the saints again. Maybe this seems a little saints heavy, but, uh, I heard an interview with, uh, who's the guy that the football guy for ESPN. Holy cow. I'm drawing a blank.
1: Uh, Adam Schefter. No, um, Chris Mortensen, no. John Clayton, John Clayton. Okay. There There is the professor. Good
2: game. there. good guessing game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentioned that Breeze does the best when he doesn't have to throw 60 times. Like he mm-hmm. just seemed, Do you find that to be true? I mean, he obviously had a good game. I didn't have
1: any problem with this game. Net, right. He, he was fine. Yeah. He didn't do anything wrong. They tricked him on one pick. Defense picked him up that time. Another pick was basically a punt. It was on third and 10, and he threw the ball 50 yards down the field, one-on-one. Guy picked it off. They started their drive at the 27 or something. Who cares? I thought that they made a way too big of a deal on the TV about that interception. It was a third and long. He didn't have anything else. He threw it up in a single coverage, and the other guy made a play. Who cares? The breeze was fine. Look, you like to have balance, but I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to try myself not saying it. The Saints only lost that game because they had the ball last. <laughs> 49ers had the ball last. Right. That's all. Saints didn't get out, dueled. Uh, Alex Smith didn't outplay Drew Brees. He just had a chance to make the play last. All right. Oh, I have to say that you were 2 and 2. I was. You won the Texans plus 9 over the Ravens. That was your game. I always say this. You always have this right. one game where you just nail it. And the other game, the Green Bay game that I got wrong,
2: is an example of a game where Not I. Not going with your gut. Yeah, I list yep. all
1: the stats why you should take the Giants, and then I take Green Bay. But yeah. I don't, whatever. All right. Let's move on to our picks this week.
2: All right. The game of the week this week is Baltimore at New England. Uh. New England's getting, giving nine nine points. That's a Sunday at 3 o'clock game on CBS. Both games this week on Sunday, uh, for those who didn't know. Give me New England, minus to nine. I know it's a big spread in a, in a championship game, but I just think New England looks like New England. And uh, Brady's on fire. And Baltimore, if they have a weakness, it's their secondary. So
1: I look for them to uh, get exploited. You know, like the Giants last week, I'm going to kind of go with the same logic of I just think they can keep it close, to the Ravens. Maybe I don't expect the Ravens to win, but I, I just think that they'll keep it close enough to be in the game late. Um, I kind of expect – I'm not going to say I expect the Ravens to win, but I expect them to compete. And uh, So I'll take the points. Yeah,
2: it's interesting because New England doesn't stop the run well either. So Baltimore could keep them off And the Baltimore
1: field. won there two years ago. So they're going to be more confident than the average team going in there to play. They won there in a playoff game. Right. If you remember, Ray Rice had a touchdown before anyone even sat down. <laughs> right. So, All right, my worldwide leader is the other NFL game this week. It's uh,
2: the Giants at San Francisco. It's on Fox Sunday at 630. This is a tale of maybe two teams that nobody wanted to play. The Giants might be the most well-rounded team in the entire league when they're going well. That said I'm going to take San Francisco at home uh, they just they kind of they played a really solid game last week and maybe they can't expect the turnovers they had last week but they're not playing the offense they played last week either so I think San Francisco can win a tight tight game here and uh but more by them by more than three I suppose
1: I think that the 49ers won their Super Bowl last week they, it just felt too emotional yeah with Uh, Vernon Davis Davis sobbing and, you know, Alex Smith feeling like he proved something. And I think they maybe felt disrespected. They were the number two seed. Everyone was talking about Saints and Packers and how they wanted to see that game. I think the 49ers really won their Super Bowl last week, and I think that's going to hurt them. I think they're going to have a hard time picking themselves back up after such an emotional win. The Giants, I think, are more seasoned for this game. They've been here just a few years ago. Um, their pass rush is deadly, um, and I think that I trust Eli Manning. Both of these teams have a great pass rush. I think that I just trust Eli Manning even after last week and how great Alex Smith was. Trust him a little bit more, and it's, I'm just I'm going to take the Giants. Yeah, it'd
2: be hard to argue any of that. Uh, I thought the same thing with Vernon Davis. On the one hand, I loved how emotional he yeah, was yeah I loved off too. the field. It, was, it was awesome to see. On the other hand, like you said, though, it's like, you haven't done anything yet. You know what I mean? You kind of like maybe took a monkey off your back, but that's it. So kind of reel it in. All right, my host's choice this week is another uh, national televised game, even though you may not know it because it's hockey. But Sunday on NBC at 1230, the Capitals play Pittsburgh. And, of course, uh, an NBC game is Washington, Pittsburgh. the Rangers, right. what they're always kind of knocked for. But anyway, I'm going to take Washington on the road. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of reason for this. It's tough to pick hockey games, but – Washington has kind of turned their season around a little bit as of late. And with Pittsburgh, it's the type of team that, uh, as impressive as they are, you just kind of keep waiting for the wheels to fall off without their number one player. So uh, give me Washington on the road. Well, I have a
1: hockey game for my (laughs) uh, pick here as well. And you know what? I I have a lot of reasons to pick this one, and I feel pretty confident. I'm going to pick the Blackhawks over the Sabres Wednesday it's also on the NBC – well, it's on the NBC Sports Network. Your game is right, actually right. on NBC, right? Yep. So mine is on the former versus. It's Wednesday, January 18th at 730. Uh, I just think that the Blackhawks the Sa- – first of all, the Sabres are just in disarray. Um, it's almost like they're all waiting for the next shoe to drop. I think people are looking around the room wondering if the guy next to him is going to be there the next day. I think they're looking behind him wondering if the coach is going to be there the next day. Uh, they're wondering up above. Is the general manager going to be there? I think that the Sabres need to get some answers. I think that Terry Pagula needs to come out and say this is where we're. This is how we're going to deal with this. He's either going to need to give Lindy Ruff a vote of confidence to the end of the season, you know, or or whatever. But the, the answers just it doesn't seem like they're going to come by Wednesday. No. The Blackhawks are a much better team right now. It's in Chicago. The Sabres have lost a ton of games in a row on the road. I think actually record numbers of games in a row on the road. So I'm going to pick the Blackhawks to beat the Sabres on Wednesday. Yeah, I know Ryan Miller
2: made the point to say, like, there's not a trade in the league that's going to fix this room right now, stuff like that. I don't know. I've seen sometimes you just have to make a trade, even one that you lose, to shake up the room a little bit, to wake them up. It's like they're sleepwalking or, like you said, just waiting for something to happen, waiting for somebody else to fix the problem. So they need something for sure. Uh, My bold prediction this week Tom Brady averaged a little bit less than two and a half touchdown passes per game this year. I'm going to say he gets four this week against Baltimore. So I'm kind of doubling down on my minus nine and a half. I think if he gets four touchdown passes, then they probably run away with this
1: game. The home teams were 4-0 wildcard weekend, 3-1 division weekend. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're going to go 0-2 this weekend. Oh yeah. I will say that the Ravens and the Giants will beat the Super Bowl again. Oh boy, I
2: hope it's better than the last one. I know. <laughs> that was garbage. That was
1: horrible. That's probably the one that I could think back to is like
2: the worst one. And it started maybe more exciting than anyone ever with back to back kick returns for touchdowns, and that was the only score that uh the Giants had all game.
1: Right. Yeah, that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't one to remember. No Is there a matchup that you want to see the most? Like there's four different possible games, right? Is there one that I, you would definitely I don't know see? if it's the one I
2: would want to see the most, but probably the sexiest one is New England that new york right i mean yes for the nfl for the rematch for for all that stuff san fran baltimore is probably the least enticing
1: but that's the Harbaugh versus Harbaugh. game that's true they've already played it though this year and it wasn't very close right or very fun
2: no so yeah i guess i mean i'll root for my picks and say new england versus san francisco i mean my pick four picks this week uh
1: but new england new york is interesting
2: story yeah,
1: I think the one that I would like to see the most is the Patriots and the 49ers maybe. Because you have the strength team that and, strength. and you have the team that dominated the 80s versus the team that dominated the 2000s. Yeah. You know, you have um a new coach versus uh established coach. You have a likable coach Right. Well, they're actually neither of them are all that likable. Harbaugh is the one, you know, smacking Jim Swerve around <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think Mr. Harbaugh is the one who likes the Harbaugh brothers the most. I don't know how how much people like them. <laughs> but I think that I'd rank that one number one. Patriots-Giants number two. Um,
2: Any combination with Baltimore. Yeah,
1: it's three and four. Yeah. I think great, probably 49ers-Ravens would be the worst case scenario. Yep, I would agree. All right, Don's going to cue the hip, but don't forget that Jim Trotter is waiting for you on the other side of that clip. So uh, we'll be back next week with Michael Farber and... SL price. That's right. All right. One, two, one, two, three, and. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Howard University. He spent over 18 years at the San Diego Union-Tribune and worked on the Chargers beat for 10 of those years. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated as a senior writer. He has been a contributor for ESPN's First Take and the NBC affiliate in San Diego. He is making his second appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the very talented Jim Chotter. How are you doing today, Mr. Chotter? I'm good, thanks. Little uh, HU band marching there for you at the beginning?
3: We love that.
1: Yeah, did you uh, have a nice holiday yesterday?
3: Uh, Yeah, I got to relax for a minute. Uh, The weather was kind of cool, which was disappointing, but the sun's back out today, so um, it's a good day.
1: Now, I know you're in the San Diego area. That wasn't you that I seen on The Real World a few weeks ago, was it? (laughs)
3: Yeah. If it was, I don't know anything about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> considering I haven't seen that show, and I would guess a decade or so, um, no, I, I would, I would hope it wasn't me.
1: Did you notice them around town when they were filming? Because it was just no, in San Diego. Uh, no,
3: uh, I, was... I, stay away, I stay away from the young crowd and the beach crowd.
1: So, <laughs> well, um, we're really glad to have you today, and you know, I don't know if we, if if we mentioned this last time but you know i'm a big saints fan and as i said to kenny albert earlier i was maybe more excited to have you guys on when i thought we were going to win the game but uh, <laughs> but um as i've told many of my friends here in buffalo and they've told me you know when since 2006 you've been to two nfc championship games won a super bowl and made the playoffs for three straight years you, you really can't you really can't cry about it too much because, you know, people here in Buffalo, they haven't seen a playoff game in over a decade. So I'm trying to have a good attitude, and I am still very excited to have you on. And I guess my first question for you is, you know, what was it like to be there in San Francisco? And how surprising was it, A, that San Francisco won, and B, that they won the way that they did?
5: Well,
3: um, it, to answer your first question, it was, it was, a lot of fun being there. You know, having been born in San Francisco, having followed the 49ers for most of my life, um, you know, I can remember where in my mind really this all started, um, you know, and that was with the catch. And I can remember watching that as a high school senior uh, and just being, you know, riveted. And so then to actually be in the stadium, for instance, when Terrell Owens made that catch against the Packers on a similar type, um, under similar type circumstances uh, to win that game and now, you know, to have him go off the field weeping uncontrollably and then have Vernon Davis make that catch and go off the field weeping uncontrollably. It brought back a lot of memory. So it was fun. Now, surprised. I wasn't surprised necessarily by the outcome because I thought San Francisco all along was good enough to win it. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't surprised at how they won it. Um, and, And I've not been one to subscribe to the theory that Alex Smith is just a game manager but at the same time to have him take that team 80 and 85 yards in under 2 minutes each in the final 4 minutes and outdo Drew Brees that was um that was pretty impressive
1: especially considering the the off, the San Francisco 49ers offense really made only one other play all day before that and that was the first quarter touchdown by um Davis I thought that the Saints defense really did a good job all day up until the last four minutes of really frustrating Alex Smith and the 49ers offense. Well,
3: they did do a good job, but the you know from what um, the Saints defenders were actually saying after the game is that they were running the same coverages that they had run earlier. So it may have become a point where you know San Francisco got the looks and anticipated what was coming. Um, the one thing you can't do in this league, particularly at this stage of the game, is be stagnant uh, with your coverages. And we saw that the week before when the Saints played the Lions, and the Lions had success in the first half. New Orleans went in, adjusted, and came back in the second half and saw that, that the Lions were running the same defensive coverages in terms of that cover two in the zones that they were running. And so they, they adjusted and they went downfield on it. Um, and, you know, if the Saints did not adjust defensively, in this case late in the game against the 49ers, then it's understandable that San Francisco would have made those plays.
1: You know, way back in the beginning of the season, Sports Illustrated wrote an article, I think it was Peter King wrote it about defenses and how they needed to adjust to offenses and I think that's even more true this season, but maybe with a slightly different angle. It seems like the position of tight end is really taking over the game and and this weekend's game was a really uh, you couldn't have a better cover you know a a better way to see that i mean the plays that Jimmy Graham made in the last few minutes, the plays that Vernon Davis made, and then the next day getting to watch Gronkowski and Brady. What do you think defenses need to do in the off season to try to stop the juggernaut that is the tight end position in the NFL all of a sudden?
3: Well, I don't know that you do it in one off season, but I think part of it comes down to personnel. Um, you know, We've seen the evolution of the safety position where you used to have a free safety and a strong safety, and the free safety was the cover guy and the strong safety was the run defender. I don't think you can have that anymore um, and be that defined in the roles and be successful. I think that's one reason you saw Eric Berry go so high in the draft go number five a couple of years ago um, was because we're moving to that point where now safeties have to be interchangeable. They have to be able to play the run and the pass, you know, and they have to be able to cover because there are going to be times where you can't get your sub package on or the matchup becomes so tough. It, it, for instance, when you're playing New Orleans, and they've got good threats on the outside with Devin Henderson, Marcus Colston, with Meecham. And now you've got to try maybe and double one of those guys. And now you've got Jimmy Graham sitting there tight in. You can't cover Jimmy Graham one-on-one with a linebacker or safety. He's too big. He's too athletic. And so, you know, if you don't have to double those guys on the outside or you don't have to double in the slot, maybe you can, you can assign another defender to the tight end. But then it raises questions about New England, for instance, with two very good pass catching tight ends in Hernandez and Gronkowski. So I think the only thing you can do is, is, is one, have better safety play, more athletic safeties, and two, you're going to have to have pressure. You're going to have to get to the quarterback because if you don't, um, it just gives the quarterback all sorts of options.
1: Is Roman Harper Kind of the second coming of Roy Williams at the safety position, where the closer he is to the line of scrimmage, the more effective he is, and the more that you need yeah. to count on him in pass coverage, the more of a disaster that it is.
3: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say disaster, but I would say yes. You're right. Um, you know, Roman in, in the game Saturday, for instance. Um, you know, the first touchdown he got knocked off by his own guy, right. Jenkins knocked him off. Yeah. Now, granted, he was trailing Vernon, but it should have been a tackle. You know, out there at about the thirty. Instead of a long touchdown, so um, but no, everybody knows that Roman's um, uh, forte is not pass coverage. It, it it's, it's being physical in the box, playing the run. So there's no doubt about that. But again, you're going if if you want to stop these offenses, you want to have a better shot of stopping these offenses. You've got to be able to match up in the passing game because that's where offenses are going.
1: How surprised were you on Sunday when the Giants kind of smacked around the? Packers the way they did.
3: I wasn't. I, I'm not going to say I, I was surprised. I think everyone had talked about that that was a potential upset. Um, I didn't think it would be as easy as it turned out to be in the second half. But I think what it what it said to me is that in the playoffs when you get opportunities, you have to capitalize on them, particularly early. And if you remember Green Bay's first drive, Aaron Rodgers had had um, Greg Jennings open um, at the right outside the numbers. And Greg got turned around, and they ended up missing on it. But it would have been an easy touchdown. Instead, they settled for a field goal. You know, in the playoffs, you've got to be able to convert when you get an opportunity for a big play. And if you don't, it comes back to bite you because if the 49ers hadn't converted those turnovers early in the game against the Saints into touchdowns and not field goals, um, it's a different game in my mind. So um, I think that, that 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 was one of the keys in that Giants Packers game is that I didn't think Green Bay took, ad- took advantage of opportunities it had early, and then clearly turnovers hurt as well.
1: Right, and the same thing haunted the Saints as I was listening to you talk and I was thinking about the Saints' first drive, where they got all the way inside the five-yard line against the 49ers, and then Pierre Thomas unfortunately up. ended up getting knocked out cold on that hit, and I think that's what led to the fumble. Did you think that that's, that's right. the kind of hit that the league is trying to take out of the game, or did you think that that was a clean hit? Because it seemed like it was crown on crown.
3: Well, there's no doubt it was crown on crown I mean, it was helmet-to-helmet, and and that's why Pierre was knocked out before he ever hit the ground. You could see it. Um, Now, my issue with it is, you know, the league has put itself in a really tough position when you start talking defenseless receiver. Because, yes, Pierre Thomas is a running back, but Pierre Thomas at that point was a receiver, and he had yet to turn around fully to the point where um, he knew what was coming at him. So if that had been a wide receiver, there's no doubt a penalty would have been thrown. A penalty flag would have been thrown on that play. So I just think there's so much subjectivity in 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 the um, calling of penalties, Um, and I think something needs to be done about it because you know clearly that was a helmet to helmet hit, and clearly you could make the case that he was a defenseless receiver at least as as the league defines it by you know according to a wide receiver.
1: Right. It almost seems like. You know, if the league was going to make a case that, you know, because he wasn't a wide receiver, that's why it wasn't called, that you could almost say the league is picking and choosing who they want to protect almost. And I'm sure they wouldn't want to ever admit to that. Do you get frustrated with. We talked to Mike Pereira before Christmas and we kind of agreed. Between the two of us, that it gets frustrating because there's so many rules and the rules are so complicated that sometimes you almost just throw your hands up and it's just too hard to understand, and you kind of just have to go with whatever they go with down there because it, it gets so tricky.
3: Well, it's not just that the rules are so complicated, it's that now there's so much subjectivity involved in, in, in the enforcement of the rules. And you've heard privately officials say or people post and say that now they've been told, hey, if it looks like you know, it's a defenseless receiver hit, call it. You know, if it looks like it's helmet to helmet, call it, even if you're not sure. And that's tough. You know, that's tough on defense. I I told people this. I would hate to play cornerback in the belt today because the rules are so geared for scoring and for passing and for receivers that it's true. You you almost can't touch these guys. And and that's unfortunate because um, it puts the the defensive back and particularly the cornerbacks. In a very tough position, and then when you have officials calling plays, um, sometimes not necessarily on what actually happened, but what they thought they saw because of the violence of the impact, um, I just don't know how you do it effectively.
1: Yeah, it gets very tricky. Uh, one last thing about the Saints, and then I want to move on to next week on the, the sportscasters. Are here with Jim Trotter from Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter: si underscore Jim Trotter. Um, the Saints have a lot of free agents. Did you get any sense in talking to the team after the game? Maybe Coach Payton. Um, do they have a priority? I mean, obviously Drew Brees is the biggest priority, but do you expect them to bring back players like Marcus Colston and Robert Meacham and uh, one of the All Pro guards? Is I think it's Nick's. It might be. Yeah, yeah, Knicks. it's Knicks, right? So, how- what are the? How-, how do the Saints prioritize this offseason?
3: I I have no idea. Um, To be frank with you, that's something that we'll deal with as we go forward. But at that point, my my sole focus was on the game, um, and in particular on the 49ers having won it. So uh, it wasn't something that I addressed with them after the game.
1: Right. Now, I know you did spend a lot of time, and there's going to be an article in tonight's The the New Issue of Sports Illustrated about uh, Alex Smith and how he was about to leave San Francisco. Um, but ended up coming back. Did you want to maybe give the listeners a little bit of a preview of what they're going to read when they do get the Newsports Illustrated this week? Well, it was more
5: just
3: sort of the mindset about returning. And, and you know, when when last season ended, they beat uh, Arizona, I believe it was 38-7 to in the season finale. And a week before, Mike Singletary had been fired as head coach. And so now the 49ers are looking for their third head coach and Alex is uh what would be his seventh season and he had uh six different offensive coordinators to that point and was about to have seven and seven years if he came back. And basically he went out to dinner with his mom, his dad, his wife and a couple of friends and, you know, they all were telling him what other people had been telling him, meaning other friends in the in the league and whatnot, that it was time for him to move on. And he had given San Francisco everything he could, but, you know, under the circumstances, um it, was just, it would just be so difficult for him to succeed. And they all had a toast at that point, and the toast was to moving on. And as Alex thought about it, he decided he didn't want to make an emotional decision. He wanted to step back from the situation. And, you know, less than two weeks later, Jim Harbaugh was hired. They had a couple of meetings. Alex liked what he heard, and that, you know, Jim was all football. Jim couldn't offer him or, or guarantee him anything other than an opportunity to compete. And that was fine with Alex, and he decided to come back and you know so sometimes the best moves you make are the ones you never make, so um from that standpoint, you know it worked out for him.
1: you know I was just listening to you to answer that question, and I was thinking about the teams that played last weekend and how the previous coaching change that the team made has really set up these teams like the Saints in two thousand and six hiring Sean Payton, totally changed the franchise. Mike McCarthy gets hired the same year in Green Bay. He's won a Super Bowl. You know, the Giants went from Faso to Coughlin. Coughlin's won a Super Bowl there. Belichick's obviously totally changed the Patriots. The two Harbaugh brothers. How important is it for these teams that have just made coaching changes and now the Colts are the newest team that will be looking for a new coach? How important is it to make the right decision when you hire these coaches?
3: Oh, it's always important to make the right, the right decision. But, you know, and it's not just the head coach. It's, it's who you hire to run your football operation, operations. It's who you decide on in terms of, of personnel moves. Um, all of it is important, but there's no question the head coach is critically important because he sets the tone for the team. He's the guy that players look to every day, you know, um, as their compass. So uh, it's critically important, and I think you can't overstate the job that Jim Harbaugh and his staff have done this year—it's—it's it's one of the best coaching jobs I've seen in all the years I've been coaching. Well, I'm sorry, covering the NFL um, to have no offseason, no contact with these players, to be coming from college to the NFL, and to have this type of success—you know, my hat's off to him.
1: As a writer, and you get ready to watch the games this weekend, are there any? Is there any combination? For the Super Bowl that you're hoping that will play out, because there's a certain set of storylines that interest you the most, like you yeah. know, maybe does the idea of Manning versus Brady Part Two appeal to you, or does a Harbaugh versus Harbaugh appeal to you? What what kind of stories are you hoping to maybe get out of the Super Bowl this year?
3: Uh, truly, I, I'm not. I haven't even thought that far ahead. The storylines, you know, to me, I just say you you go from week to week. Um, you try and find the best storylines that you can. Every game has its own um, subplots. So, no, I haven't thought that far down the line. The ones you mentioned are obvious ones that would be attractive to, to anyone, but they're also storylines that would be beaten to death The right. um, lead up to the game. So then it would become almost boring. So, um, you know, a lot of times I just like to find another another smaller angle. I mean... Um, something maybe off the beaten track a little bit if you can. Um, and right now, I don't know what
1: that would be. Where are you headed this weekend, and, and which of the two games do you think is more likely to have a potential upset?
3: Um, head back to San Francisco, uh, as far as a potential upset, I, I don't know how you could call San Francisco or New York winning an upset. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make a strong case for either one of them um, winning that game and be right. So, I don't know that, that, that the outcome of that game could be described as an upset, regardless of which way it goes. And the New England-Baltimore game is kind of the same thing. I mean, Baltimore went up there two years ago in the playoffs and spanked the um, Patriots. So if they were to do it again, is that an upset? Um, New England's the number one seed this year at that home. It's playing a Ravens team that um, uh, was dominant this year at home, that struggled on the road. Uh, so if New England wins that game in Foxborough, is that an upset? You know, I don't think so. So I I don't know that that I could say either of these games, the outcome of either of these games would be an upset.
1: When I think about the Giants and the 49ers game, I kind of think of it being a little bit of the opposite of what the Saints and the 49ers were. Where the Saints and the 49ers were offense versus defense, it almost seems like this game is a little bit strength versus strength. And maybe the game will come down to which team's pass rush is more effective. Uh, what what, What do you look for this weekend?
3: No, it definitely could be. I, I think if you go back and you look at when these teams met in November, um, they were drop pass from going to overtime. If, if Mario Manningham doesn't drop, you know, a deep post from Eli Manning in the final minutes, um, we're probably in overtime and that's how close that game was. To me, one of the keys obviously is going to be pass rush, uh, for the 49ers against the Giants. You've got to make Eli uncomfortable. But then the other thing after that is that you've got to be very sure in your tackling after the catch. And one thing about the 49ers, they may be the best tackling team in football. Um, they're very sure, particularly on the back end, they give up a lot of yards after catch. So, you know, or yards after contact, I should say. So I, I think that that's going to be critical to this game. And I think the other things we talked about is when you get down in the red zone, you've got to come away with touchdowns. You can't come away with field goals. And if you do those things, then... If San Francisco does those things, I think San Francisco will win. If it allows New York to get those big chunks in the pass game to get yards after contact, then I think New York's going to win this game.
1: You know, it's interesting that the whole kind of turnaround kind of started with the 99-yard touchdown that Victor Cruz scored against the Jets. But in the playoffs, it seems like Hakeem Nix has kind of stepped back as the Giants' number one guy. Do you think that the attention is just focused over to Cruz so much that Nix is finding his way open, or do you think Nix has just elevated his game back up to where we kind of expected it to be going into this season?
3: Well, you have to remember Nix was hurt part of the year. So um, I think he's healthy now. I think he's a tremendous talent. And I do think the fact that Cruz has played so well and is drawing attention is helping, um, uh, as well. So I think it's a combination of all those things, but that's what makes the Giants so effective because who are you going to focus on? You know, are you going to take away Nix and leave Cruz? Are you going to try and double those two or bracket those two and then leave Mario Manningham to come up with a key catch as he's done the last couple of weeks? You know, the one thing about the Giants, though the tight end position has not hurt opponents, um, but that's in part because their, their wideouts have been so good they've been able to get chunks down the field. So it's going to be a very interesting matchup. Uh, and, I, and I'm intrigued to see what kind of adjustments both teams make after having played each other, you know, um, as recently as November.
1: Alright, the Sportscaster is lucky enough to spend some time here with Sports Illustrated senior writer Jim Trotter, who again you can find on Twitter at SI underscore Jim Trotter and who is going to have a story in this week's magazine about Alex Smith and his decision to remain a 49er. Can I get any predictions from you for the weekend?
3: Uh, truly, I don't have any. I'd be lying to you if I told you. I think if if my back's against the wall, I would say uh, San Francisco at home wins and New England at home wins. I'll take the home teams.
1: All right. Sounds good. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.
3: All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mr. Charter.